I have a friend named John. From RJB. On May 19th in 2015, John came home a different man. It was the night that haunts his dreams. I knew him once as a bright, happy, and kind man, but after that night, he was different. John was a forest ranger in Arkansas for eight years. He was six foot five, never got scared very easily. He was a tough and rather built guy, and on that night, I had pulled into his driveway at around 10.30 p.m. to pay him a surprise visit. I lived in Louisiana at the time. He hadn't made it home from work yet, so I figured he might have had to work later than usual, as he'd said that it happened sometimes. He didn't know I was coming, and I hadn't seen him in two years. John pulled up about half an hour after me. He parked beside me and shut off the engine. However, he did not get out. I got out of my little Ford Ranger and walked to the passenger side to open his door. I opened it to see a grown man crying. The smell of alcohol was thick in the air. Obviously, he had been drinking. John, what's wrong? I asked him nervously. He continued to cry, so I placed my hand on his shoulder, but he immediately jerked away. John, it's me, Ryan. I thought he may not have recognized me, because I had grown a full beard in the two years we hadn't hung out. Come on, man, let's, let's go inside, I told him. He clumsily stumbled out of his truck. I wrapped my arm around him, helping him walk, then I carried him over to his sofa and sat next to him. John, what the hell happened to you? He didn't respond at first but he did stop crying at a point. He was pale and had a look on his face like he had been to war. Shell shock, I think it's called. I repeated myself. He looked at me with tears drying in his cheeks. God, Ryan. He stumbled over to me with shaking legs and gave me a hug. You have no idea how happy I am to see you, he whimpered. John had been my best friend since grade school. We grew up always hanging out, mostly wandering around the nearby woods climbing trees, and as we reached our teens we'd often go camping together. We had never been scared in the woods. The only strange occurrence was when we found some weird footprints one time, but that's a different story. He let go of me and grabbed a bottle of whiskey from the freezer, pouring us both a glass. Don't you think you've had enough? I said as he handed me my glass. John calmed down and ignored me. Can you at least answer my question? What happened, John? I don't think I've ever seen you like this before. Like I said, he'd always been a happy-go-lucky guy. He spoke. There's some weird crap going on in those damn woods. What do you mean? I asked, worried. Ryan. Oh. Ryan, we found a body today. He replied. I was puzzled. I know he had found bodies before, but he'd never been this upset about it. I'm sorry, man. 
I genuinely was sorry for him. Go ahead, tell me everything. He downed the glass of whiskey in no time and poured more in it. And this was different. This wasn't like the other bodies we'd seen. There was something... Something had been eating him, he said, swirling the glass around before he downed a second. I was still on my first. Good God, John, stop. That's enough, I said, grabbing the bottle and putting it back in the freezer. Fine, he groaned. I asked him what was eating this man's body. Ugh, I don't know. It was like nothing I'd ever seen, he said. I told him to start at the beginning. He spoke. I was at HQ when we received a missing person call. The woman said she and her husband had been hiking on one of the more remote trails when her husband decided to walk a ways off the trail to take a leak. She waited for ten minutes for her husband to come back. She yelled for him, but she didn't get a reply. She went into the trees in the direction she saw him go, but she didn't find him. She instead found blood on the ground. And that's when she called us. My co-worker, Bill, and I immediately packed our gear and headed to the location he was last seen. We didn't have to go far, because we found an arm about a hundred yards off the trail, and the rest of him was about fifty yards further. The sun had already set, but we had our mag lights. When I found them, there was something else. Something squatting over him, and I could hear it tearing flesh off his body as it was ripping chunks of meat off him and swallowing them. John began to tear up again, but he pulled himself back together and continued. I shined my flashlight to get a better look at what it was. I should have just ran. God, I, I just froze, though. Bill was just terrified. We couldn't move. It stood up and turned around towards us, giving us a full view. It was tall, about seven feet. Its skin was pale, almost gray, and seemed like the skin was painfully stretched over old bones. It was so thin. It had a single large, pure-black eye on the left side of its face, too. Its mouth opened, and it made this weird insect-like clicking sound. It didn't even have a normal mouth. It opened up like a blooming flower, like petals filled with rows upon rows of teeth. The mouth seemed to vibrate, too, as it made the sound. He paused, grabbed a cigarette from his pack, and lit it. He took a long puff and exhaled. His story sounded insane, but the look of pure fear in his face told me otherwise. From the look of him, he seemed to be telling the truth. Sure, he would sometimes lie to prank me, but those tears, that desperate need to drink, that was all real. Please, go on, I told him, and he did. I pulled out my forty-five and took aim. My co-worker screamed and ran, so I prayed it'd do some damage, or at least buy us some time. It lunged at me and I fired. It wailed, and I proceeded to empty the clip that I had. 
However, it still stood there, though it was bleeding bad, but it acted like it was just a scratch. I ran. I'd never been so scared in my life. Jesus Christ, I thought I was going to die. He took another drag. My lungs, my legs burned. I felt like I was going to pass out at any second. We made it back to HQ and turned around to see if the thing had followed us, but there was nothing there. We were safe. Or we assumed we were safe. I sat there in disbelief, still holding a mostly full glass of Jack. Oh God, I replied. That sounds... that sounds awful, John. Don't I know it? But it was so vivid, so real he said, with trembling hands. Ryan, I'm done working the late shift. The police took a statement and Bill quit on the spot. The police said it was probably a hallucination caused by shock of finding a corpse like that, but I was adamant that what we saw was real. One of the officers pulled me aside and said quietly so no one else would hear, if I were you, I'd just forget what he saw. It's better to let us handle it. Man, they know what's out there, but they won't tell us details. I'm... I'm honestly terrified to go back. Screw risking my life for this job. I'm not going out after dark again. John finished telling his experience. I'm going to bed now, and I think you should do the same. John got up gave me a bro hug and a thank you and went to his room. But I didn't sleep much that night. I know this is a long and pretty unbelievable story, but I do believe there's something in the forests of northern Arkansas, something who, just by the sight of it, has haunted my friend. Whatever it is, it doesn't care if you have family or friends. It's something that won't hesitate to rip you apart and devour you bit by bit. Be careful out there. Sometimes, you don't know how scary it is out there until it's too late. Skinwalker in Wyoming from Zazay This was an encounter my brother had with what he truly believes to be a skinwalker. Late one evening, my brother and his best friend decided that they wanted to go camping that night, and they brought along two girls that they were interested in at the time. It was a last-minute decision, but they had just enough time to set up camp before the sun faded, so they got enough supplies for two days of camping, quickly packing, and left to pick up the girls. After a couple of hours, they finally found a spot they liked, about thirty or so feet from a creek. With less than an hour of sufficient light, they speedily set up camp and sleeping arrangements. Now that they were ready for the night, they put together a quick fire pit and chairs. Being typical teenagers, they all cracked some beers open and jovially talked about their weeks and lives. In the middle of the conversation, they began to hear cracking branches and twigs down by the creek. Of course, this creeped them out a bit, but both my brother and his friend had sidearms, so they didn't let it bother them too much. 
The movement stopped shortly after, and the mood eventually rose again. Time went on, and the night soon became early morning. Since they arrived only a couple of hours passed, but they decided to get an early start to the next day, so the group headed to their separate tents. If you ask me, I bet they were just eager to consult the girls. Only about fifteen minutes later, my brother heard his friend unzip his tent and walk over to his. He said, I'm not trying to interrupt anything, but I gotta go to the bathroom. My brother knew what he was implying and decided his bladder could also use some relief. You afraid a bear's gonna get you? My brother said, as they approached the creek not too far. Not wanting the girls to hear, my brother's friend shrugged and began to relieve himself. Within a few seconds, it got eerily quiet. This quickly put both of them on edge. My brother says his hair stood on end. The crackling of branches and movement sent a panic between the two. A large figure on all fours appeared out of the dark on the other side of the creek. This was the largest thing my brother ever seen. His first thought about this large creature was they had just awakened a huge and most likely angry black bear. Time slowed to a crawl as they watched this large thing slowly get closer. It was only about ten feet away when it stood up. Still, in fear, my brother noticed something terrifying about this animal. It had large red glowing eyes, as if they were red LEDs instead of normal eyes. The legs on it bent backward at a weird angle, and it stood over nine feet tall. His shock was broken when he heard a loud bang and turned to see his friend unloading his revolver at it. The noise was so sudden and deafening. My brother immediately grabbed his gun by his side and followed suit. The creature was shot in the head at least twice, and the remainder of the bullets entered its body. With both pistols spent, the thing was still upright, acting only slightly annoyed. It let out a large and deafening wail that seemed somewhat human, and in the blink of an eye, it ran off along the creek faster than anything my brother had ever seen. Not knowing what to say, they both just ran back to camp. When they got back, they found the two girls shivering and terrified outside the tents, freaking out about the sounds of gunfire. Not wanting to waste any time, they all packed up in record speed. The dark drive back was quiet, somber. Paranoia and shock left them all speechless for a while, not sure of what to say. Finally, my brother's friend asked, What the hell was that? My brother thought for a moment, then took a deep breath. I have no idea. Whatever it was, it was huge. One of the girls finally decided to speak up too. What was that loud scream we heard? What were you guys even firing at? After exchanging glances with one another, neither of them knew how to reply. The ride home was longer and creepier after what they experienced. They were tired and shaken up. Soon enough, they arrived at my brother's friend's house and finally passed out there. The next morning, 
they took the girls home. After that, my brother and his friend decided to take a ride back to that spot. Maybe they could find some answers. The creek seemed slightly more off-putting. After crossing to the side the creature was on, they were surprised to find not even a trace of blood. They did find shells that they fired off, broken branches and holes in trees, but no tracks, no blood. Some time went by, and both my brother and his friend had some weird things happen to them after that night camping. They claimed to see shadowy figures stalking around after the sun goes down, but I think they're just paranoid. How could you not be after seeing something you failed to explain? I've heard this story a few times from him, but seeing the fear on my brother's face when he tells it, it helps validate the truth in my eyes. Why would a fake story scare him that bad? The Haunted Prison from Amber P. I live in England. This experience has definitely left me nervous and a bit frightened. There's this prison about ten minutes away from my house. I began to search up different ghost stories and I found the website, Gloucestershire Prison. It was around twenty-five pounds to get in, and I remember being so nervous, but excited. When my dad said we could go, I was very fervent and kept asking when we were going. A few weeks go by, and my dad eventually gathers enough money for all of us, and I was so happy. We arrived at the prison, and I felt nervous, but I was trying to act like I wasn't bothered. You excited? Dad asked. I nodded and grinned, saying, yep. He chuckled at me. We paid the lady, who gave us two visitor tags to go around our necks, and a guide. Enjoy, she exclaimed and we both smiled before thanking her. We began walking down the odd-smelling corridor, before I suddenly flinched and covered my heart. I saw a mannequin standing in one of the cells where the people were searched. An uneasy feeling set in my stomach, and I swallowed nervously. My dad and I walked on, silently listening for any specific sounds, but we couldn't hear a thing until I began to hear a slight tune being hummed. I grabbed my dad's shoulder and told him to stop. Stop what? he said. I was chilled. The humming wasn't coming from my dad. We continued on as I tried to ignore it. I looked down at the guide to try and distract myself. Oh look, I said. The prison was built over bodies from where they hung people. My dad nodded and began talking about something, but I didn't hear what he was saying as I was more interested in that humming again. This time I simply whispered into the nothingness, Hello? I was getting this eerie feeling even worse. I knew someone was watching us somewhere. I just couldn't find them. The humming became more clear, and I could tell what sound it was. It was the soft lullaby of Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. The person humming it sounded feminine, too. I looked around me, spinning in circles slowly. No one was there except for me, my dad, and some workers. 
It was quite early in the morning, so no one else was here yet, and the tours with real officers wouldn't start until nighttime. Dad, do you hear that? I asked, as shivers ran down my spine. I did not get a reply, and so I looked to where my dad was, but to my horror, he was no longer there. Dad? I yelled out, now panicking. It was dark in the building, and hauntingly oppressive. Dad! I began speedwalking out until I got to the courtyard. Dad, why didn't you tell me where you were going? He looked at me, but I did. I even told you to follow me. I glared at him, not sure that I believed him, before crossing my arms over my chest. But, but did you hear the humming? I asked, as I got my phone out and began to take pictures. What are you talking about? What humming? I shook my head. Never mind, Dad. It was probably my imagination, I guess. As I said that, my phone began to play up. The torch turned on by itself, and it wouldn't turn off, no matter what I did. The heck, I said, pressing the on and off button rapidly before giving up. As we began walking to the A-Wing, I heard a sound like something was being dragged. Can you hear that, at least? I looked at my dad, who shook his head. Still don't know what you're talking about, kiddo. As we walked up the stairs, I began to feel this heavy feeling as if something didn't want us there. Dad wrapped an arm around me and we both looked around in silence. We called out, but did not get a response. But maybe that was a good thing. We began opening the cell doors and looking in, when suddenly my dad yelled boo at me, causing me to squeal and cover my head. My dad laughed and soon enough I was joining in. As we got to the last cell, we closed the door then began walking away. As the door behind us closed, we both heard a loud booming sound, as if someone was walking up the hallway with very heavy boots on. Suddenly, they stopped. Then it sounded like a guard's keys were being moved about. Once again, Dad didn't hear it. But what he did hear was the sound of a cell door slamming shut. I screamed as we ran. Later on, my dad said that that could probably be explained. But I firmly believed that a lot of what I heard that day had to have been something paranormal. But you never know. My dad said that we were just being pranked, being fooled into believing that the prison was haunted so we'd tell people or come back one day. Just then, I rolled my eyes and looked up at the window, and my eyes widened. I gulped. Do you see that? I asked my dad. Yeah, he said, finally agreeing with me, finally seeing something that I saw. I shakily said, even if that's makeup, how do you make your skin transparent? What we were looking at was someone in the window. Someone so pale and transparent that you could see the wall behind them. We walked away, absolutely creeped out. We handed our tags back to the lady and smiled. My dad asked them about there being anyone with makeup on in this tour and she looked puzzled, explaining that they didn't run a haunted house, just a historic attraction, 
So no, they did not employ actors of any kind. I stared at her with wide eyes. Maybe that prison was very haunted. Northeast Ohio Skinwalkers From Asa R. My best friend and I have hunted and fished the areas around his land for years, and have had many odd experiences. One particular night didn't seem so special at first, but this was the first legitimate experience I had. We were at a father and son campout that a local church puts on every year. I was there with my dad, of course, and I was about seventeen. My best friend was sixteen at the time. We were sitting alongside one of the two ponds on the property, fishing and talking quietly late into the night. Everyone had set up camp around the fire, except for myself and my dad. We thought it'd be fun to drive his yellow Mazda Sportster down the land bridge between the two ponds and camp up in a field behind the edge of the forest there. Now, before I continue, I need to point out that this forest butts up against my best friend's land as well just a few miles north. There's also a huge wildlife reserve that contains a rather large Native American burial site that borders my friend's land and has its own stories and local legends. As my friend and I were sitting there fishing, we were playing with my airsoft guns that I had brought to just plink around with. They obviously didn't offer much protection, but sitting outside in the middle of nowhere at 2.30 a.m. and having them felt a bit comforting. We were sitting on the opposite side of the pond from where my dad and I set up camp. The moon was bright and full so we could see very clearly without flashlights. The fire glowed in the distance too, behind us, about 120 yards away, and the pond being about 45 to 50 yards wide and a banana shape in length, it wrapped around to the right of us. My friend and I stopped talking at the same time as we heard something bizarre. We listened intently as we heard what sounded like two muffled voices coming from the tree line across the pond in front of us. My initial thought was some kind of cult or witches performing a ritual in the woods. Turns out, I wasn't too far off. The sound traveled from the far right of the tree line to directly in front of us, then to the left. After that, it centered to in front of us. We were both a little creeped out and getting chills from this, but we were rationalizing it to be some other campers walking around in the woods talking quietly. I mean, we probably weren't the only ones out there, right? The woods lit up with light as my dad turned on his car. He was pulling down the path to the land bridge in a panic. I got up and started running over to meet the car when it got down to our side of the pond. He stopped and was clearly upset, asking me why I was messing with him and what exactly I had been saying when I was in the woods. I told him where I'd been and that the voice he had been hearing was definitely not mine. He looked confused and said he was going to try to go back to sleep, but that he was going to sleep in the car out by the other campers. I could tell he was creeped out too, and if something was messing with the tent or yelling at him from the woods... It was too far for me to hear or know about. We continued sitting by the pond, now curious to what was going on. About fifteen minutes later, 
we heard a loud splash come from the runoff creek for the pond. It's in the woods on the other side of the pond. I said it was probably a deer just to keep our nerves calm, but my friend looked at me and said, Asa, deer don't go in the water at night because they can't see how deep it is. I froze and started silently praying for protection. My friend said he thought he saw something for a split second, but I didn't get a look at it. And then we both heard it. A scream. It was straightforward out of a nightmare. So feral and evil it made us both jump and sprint back to the campfire. I don't remember anything except for how hard my heart and blood were pumping in the moment. But let me tell you, it was the most terrifying thing you'd ever hear in your life. If you've seen that video on YouTube by Big Dill of someone capturing a skinwalker scream, supposedly, that's eerily similar to what I heard. Things got weirder that morning. We walked out there before anyone else got up to look for signs of what it was. We found huge tracks of what looked like massive wolf paws. But wolves don't have eight toes on their paws. Whatever this thing was, it did. I guess all I can say is that this world is pretty strange. The woods is spooky. Might as well bring the whole military if you're planning a simple jog through the mountains. Even then, if they take their eyes off of you for even a moment, you're probably a goner. Good night. If you enjoyed this episode of Darkness Prevails, be sure to like, share, comment, and subscribe. If you want your own story narrated, first thing you need to do is send it to us at darkstories.org or darknessprevails.org submit. If you want to support the show, check the links in the description for a link to my Patreon, a link to my merch store, or a link to start investing with acorns. That helps me out a bit, too. Now, as usual, here are my five favorite early comments from the previous episode, titled, The Sounds of Cracking Bones, Five True Scary Stories. Herobrine854035 Max says, Do sightings of Jesus. Herobrine, I do scary stories. Jose Chavez says, Broke my wrist in a crash yesterday. Well, darn. I hope you feel better soon. That does match the title of that video, though. Malaki La Forge says, Like so my peanut can grow an inch. Just leave a like there. Click for heart. Wonder if that'll help. Animzer Nedjib says, Sometimes your voice gives me nightmares. Well, then I'm doing my job right. And Mimi Katzen says, I'm a simple witch. I see dark stories, I click. Then I see the Wiccan on the video, and I die happy. Well, you better get resurrected soon, so you don't miss out on any new videos. Well, that brings us to the end of this Darkness Prevails episode. But don't you worry, more scary stories are on the way soon. So stay tuned. Until next time, here are the credits to my patrons who continue to donate. They are awesome people. Remember, stay safe out there, and stay creepy. Because this world is a strange one. In today's episode, the Jersey Devil makes a terrifying return. 
Creepy deer heads come out to have a word with us, and something that doesn't move becomes the most terrifying thing you've ever heard of. These are five allegedly true scary stories from the woods that will certainly give you nightmares. Enjoy. If you have a story of your own, be sure to share it with us at darkstories.org or darknessprevails.org slash submit. Also, I have a quick question. I'm getting really irritated by cliché phrases in these stories. Would it be wrong for me to ask people to leave clichés out of the stories from now on? I mean, I think every one of the stories today in this video mentions the woods going quiet. It's just not scary anymore, to me at least. And every time I see it now, I end up sighing after I have to read it. But that's just me. Let me know what you think. Now, let's begin. Still Like a Statue From John Extravagance In July of 2008, I was taking a road trip across the southern United States. I only had a couple of weeks before I would begin university, and I had just moved on from a breakup. So I decided to go on a solo road trip before summer break ended. My plan was to begin in Nashville, Tennessee, camp at some national parks in Alabama, go to a beach or two in Florida, then finish it all off with Baton Rouge, Louisiana. At this point of the trip, I was in Alabama. The first national park I intended to go to in Alabama was the Bankhead National Forest, which, if you've ever seen it on a map or in person, you know it's fairly big and desolate. But I liked it that way, because I don't get to see a whole lot of genuine nature where I live. Anyway, I get to the National Forest at around mid-morning, so between 9 and 11 a.m., I basically do all of the stuff that a nature-loving person would do at a national forest. Hike, fish, etc. At around 7 p.m. or so, it starts getting dark, so I find a camping area and begin pitching up my tent for the night. When looking around, I noticed that there were only two other tents in the whole camping area, one of which packed up and left right as I arrived. In the slight brightness from the setting sun, I could see the silhouette of a person sitting up in the single remaining tent. They weren't moving at all. This gave me the impression that they were staring at me, but I just didn't pay any mind to it, and continued on with making my tent. Right when I sat down in front of the fire, I truly take in how quiet it is outside, even considering it was just me and some other person out here. It was like something was spooking the wildlife. There just wasn't much sound, and it was making me feel unnerved. As time passed, I realized that my firewood stash was dwindling, so I went into the surrounding tree line with my flashlight to get some more. I guess I got carried away, because before I even thought about it, I was a couple hundred feet into the tree line, a bit of a ways away from the camping area. As I began to walk back, I realized that it wasn't the same path I originally took, as where I was walking would bring me right where the other person's tent was. I turn off my flashlight so as to not startle whoever was in there, and I started to walk by the tent, but not too close. At this point, my eyes had just adjusted to the darkness, 
and when I walked near the person's tent, I took a quick glance inside, and what I saw had now made me completely unsettled. In the moonlight, I saw the person sitting straight up in the tent just as I saw them before a couple of hours ago, still not moving an inch, not making a single sound. Though I was close enough, and it was quiet enough outside, I should have been able to hear them breathing. I wasn't close enough to make out exact features, but close enough to confirm that this was a human being, not a pile of something-like equipment making a human silhouette. Keep in mind that the surrounding nature was still quiet, so if this person had previously laid down and sat up, I would have been able to hear it. The only explanation I could think of would be that this person had literally been sitting there in their tent, motionless in the same exact position, for several hours. I hadn't heard a single thing from their tent since I arrived. I took this all in as I was walking by the tent, never stopping or even looking back. When I got back to my campsite, I called in a night right then and there, dunking some water in the fire, and then going to bed. I lay there, questions running through my head like, did that car that left right when I came here have something to do with this? Is this guy on drugs? Is he going to rob me in my sleep? Is he even alive? Despite the stress, I was exhausted, and I eventually fell asleep. I woke up a couple of hours later, not sure why at first. I almost began to sit up in my sleeping bag, but I caught myself when I saw the same person that I saw before, in the same stance, still motionless, but now somehow, they were a couple of inches in front of my tent. I had to try extremely hard to both keep quiet and not have a heart attack right then and right there. The person sat there, absolutely as motionless as before, their shadow being cast across the tent. I closed my eyes, blinking away fearful tears, hoping for whoever this was to go away. But they stayed there, seemingly looking at my tent. At this point, I prayed to God that they never noticed that I had woke up. I don't know when, but eventually I fell back to sleep and woke up just when the sun was rising. I opened my eyes for a brief moment, enough to confirm that there was no longer anyone at my tent. But I would lay there for another fifteen minutes, still horrified that the person could be close still. But eventually, I mustered up the courage to zip open my tent. I took a quick glance at the other campsite. Their tent was still there, but the flap was open now, and from where I was looking, no one was inside anymore. The person was still out there somewhere, probably watching me from the woods. I didn't even try to disassemble my tent as I just took out all the stakes, stuffed the whole thing into my trunk, and started to book it out of there, like I was trying to break a world record. When I was getting to open my car door, however, I stopped and I saw that the words, You shouldn't cry, were drawn by someone's finger 
on the sheen of dirt on my driver's side window. Questions still come to my mind every once in a while about this whole thing. I saw some guy leaving in a car soon after I got to the camping area. Did he have any connections to this person? Or had he had the same terrifying experience? How was that person standing so perfectly still, but at the same time felt like they could attack me at any moment? Was it just some hillbilly trying to scare one single guy they didn't even know? Uh, this was eleven years ago, so I'll probably never know, but maybe that's for the better. Something in the Wilderness from Air Force 123 This happened two years ago when I visited a friend down at the countryside. My friend Cody lived in a pretty decent-sized house with a barn in their backyard. I remembered the woods were located at about a hundred yards away from the property. Cody and I were friends since high school and we had always enjoyed talking about guns, fishing, and hunting. One summer day, he invited me over to his house to try out his new rifle that he had just purchased. Now his property was big enough to discharge a firearm on, because there wasn't anyone living nearby. It would be about a 15-minute drive to a nearby town, so as I got to his house, he showed me his AR-15, which I couldn't wait to shoot. I remembered Cody's brother was 12 years old at the time, so he just stayed in his room playing video games, ignoring us while we were in the backyard minding our own business. As we enjoyed our time, I asked my friend if there were any deer in the woods. Of course there were, but this was my way of asking how ripe they were, how many there were. He said he had seen a few lately, but wolves and coyotes a couple of times too and that he was afraid they would start dwindling down the number of deer. I think the conversation caused him to switch gears, because he suddenly asked if I wanted to go hunting. Now, I'm not a big fan of hunting, but I did want to go out into the woods, and maybe I'd earn myself some deer steak in the process. I answered, sure. We went back to the house, prepared a bit, then journeyed into the woods, I remembered checking the time as we entered the tree line to see that it was 6.57 p.m. As it was summer, the sky was still bright. The birds and insects chirped as normal, all while we walked down this path. A while later, we sat down on a rock and started whispering. Is this your usual spot? I asked. He shook his head, saying that he had only been here to hunt once before. As we continued to whisper chat, I spotted something moving about 30 yards away from us. I nudge his shoulder and point over in that direction. Do you see that? I ask. I bet I can nail it from here, I said. Cody laughed, and he took aim at the thing himself. He looked down the scope. Looks like a deer. Even I got excited when he said that. Maybe we were going to bag something today and even faster than I expected. But then I heard him swallow down hard, lower the scope a moment, then looked back. What's wrong? I asked. I don't know. There's like 
this red stuff all over its face and all over its legs. I had brought some miniature binoculars. I whipped them out, hoping that they'd be strong enough to see the deer from here. They were. I immediately asked, Whoa, dude, are the deer usually that big here? Not really. After he answered, the deer disappeared into some bushes. And right after that, Cody got up, wanting to follow it as quietly as possible, probably not wanting to let a deer that big be passed up. But before we got anywhere, we heard Cody's brother calling us from the house. Cody rolled his eyes, but then I noticed something weird. I thought he had been yelling at us from the house, but then I realized we were deep into the woods, and the path before us led back out, but the voice was coming from a different direction. That's not right, Cody said. Maybe it's just an echo bouncing off the hills, I replied. I don't know about that. The yelling repeated, never sounding any closer, but somehow it had the same sound to it, repeated perfectly, identical to the last. It was weird, but not enough to spook us out of the woods. That is, until Cody looked back into the rifle scope and nearly dropped the gun entirely. Cody, man, what's going on? T take a look. I looked into my binoculars, and what I saw was so insane that I still don't believe it myself. The deer was back. It had come out of the bushes it had exited from before. And every time we heard his brother shout, the deer opened its mouth and closed it the moment the yelling stopped. It did this with every set of yells, like someone mouthing with a sock puppet. No way, I said. It had to be some disturbing coincidence, right? Besides, if his brother was yelling, he'd had to have come all the way out to the start of the trail at least for us to hear him. And then Cody got a text. A text which read, You guys coming back? Mom and Dad won't start dinner till you get back. I felt chills go down my spine. I pulled out my pistol, pointing it towards the bush, and Cody said that we need to walk slowly back through the path. But what happened next gave me chills. As we walked slowly onto the path, the deer that had been over a hundred yards away seconds ago poked its red matted face out from a nearby bush and stared at us, its mouth hanging open as the yell came again from the wrong direction. My mind was racing with questions I didn't think I would ever ask. How can a deer talk? Is it human somehow? If not, what the hell is it? Suddenly, a loud bang had me covering my ears. I looked over and saw that Cody had fired a shot at it. The deer's face had been pulled back into the bush, and we took the opportunity to run as fast as we could back to the house. When we made it back, it was 8.30pm, but there was no way we had been gone longer than 30 minutes. After all, we had entered the woods at 6.57. 
We actually ended up sharing this story with Cody's parents that night. But bizarrely enough, Cody's dad had his own similar story. He said he believed us. Because, creepily enough, one night when he had trouble sleeping, he went to grab a glass of water. It was 1am. He heard Cody's voice calling from outside, asking his dad to come out to him. That didn't make sense, because the dad had just passed Cody's door, and Cody was sound asleep. To this day, Cody and I are still great friends. He moved out of that place several months ago. I wonder what would have happened if he had stayed there. I wonder what other creepy experiences they'd have to share. Goatman in the Mountains from DJ Electric Zone I was young, and my imagination was wild. But what I'm about to tell you still terrifies me. This was not my imagination. I'd gone camping in the mountains. It was a two-week excursion that soon turned to hell. It was a night for telling stories, scary stories. We were near a fence, and I was sitting with my back against it. It was a barbed wire fence, and there were bushes growing on the other side. The fence was there because we raised farm animals, including horses and fowl. The fence was supposed to help keep Coyote out, but they always found a way in. Anyway, there were 17 people in our camp altogether, girls and boys, each of us just chit-chatting and sharing stories. When suddenly, a branch broke right behind me, forcing me, as well as a lot of the guys around me, to nearly jump in the fire pit to get away. We were so spooked, we just stared off into the wilderness for a second. Everyone quiet, waiting for something to happen. After several minutes, we decided to sit back down. Obviously, it was nothing, so we continued what we were doing. Until I heard a different sound from right behind me, just beyond the fence. Hey. I nearly soiled myself as I jumped up and turned around. Imagine that feeling when you think a spider is on your neck or something but multiply it by ten. That's how I felt when I heard that voice. But when I turned, I didn't see anything, save for the movement in a bush. I swear to God, it was like someone or something was taunting us. I wasn't the only one that heard that voice either. When I felt comfortable enough to look away from those bushes, the guys around me looked so spooked that they were huddling together, shaking and looking into the woods. I can't blame them. I still had an extra layer of goosebumps all over me. Peter, the tallest guy of the group, suddenly got up and yelled into the forest. That's not funny! Stop it! Obviously fed up with someone who he thought was pranking us. The next thing we know, a dozen or so deer run right out of the woods not even caring that a group of people were camping nearby. They were running desperately away from something. They were just as scared as we were. But what was the cause? What lurked out there that was terrifying everything around us? 
Even the horses were stampeding off into the distance, toward the opposite side of the field. I asked the group if they wanted to head back to the cottages, and they all agreed. Not a single person out there wanted to stay out here any longer. We packed up at a record speed, and made it back to the cottages extremely fast. But before we did make it back, I gotta say that we smelled something very terrible. It was a stench I'd never experienced on this land before. A strong odor of rotten eggs and rotting animal. Anyway, we got in away from that smell, away from the night, hoping that would be the end of it. When we headed to bed, the strangest series of sounds erupted from the forest that we had just escaped from. They kept coming and coming all night, echoing throughout the land. Despite locking all the doors and windows, these sounds were clear as day, almost paranormally unimpeded by the structure of the cottage around us. As for the sounds themselves, it was like a thousand different animals writhing around in pain in one single spot. The way I imagined it in my head, I could see a thousand different animals writhing in a tar pit, crying and screaming out in pain to no avail. But that wasn't right, because we just saw every species of animal exit that forest at a rapid rate. Sure, maybe a few were left behind and stayed there, but not thousands. Most of us couldn't sleep, but we laid still and quiet in the dark, trying to sleep or trying to stay calm. One of the girls got up and looked out the window, looking back toward the campsite, and I heard her audibly gasp. We all did. What's wrong? I asked. Given the situation, seeing a look on her face like that was something to deeply worry me. She replied, I, I thought we put the fire out. The moment she said that, me, along with a few other of the guys, got up and swarmed the window to get a good look at what was going on. Where we had been camping, I could see the fire pit, and it was lit, even though we had put it out with the dirt. Yet there it was, like we never did. And then we all gasped at the same time, because a small, hunched, human-like figure stepped right out of the tree line, walked up to the fire, and stood over it, seeming to shiver as it tried its best to stay still. Who is that? The girl said, still standing and staring at the window. But none of us had an answer. The next morning, in broad daylight for sure, we went to investigate our campsite. We found quite a mess. The bushes by the fence had been uprooted and torn to shreds. The fence itself had a massive hole in it, as if someone or something had crossed through. The fire pit had been stomped into an ash pancake, basically. Yet somehow, nowhere around us, was there a single footprint, save for hours from the previous night. Ever since these events, I've wondered what it was we encountered or nearly encountered back then. What if it was the Goat Man? A strange prankster-like creature up in the mountains, mimicking voices, scaring us for the fun of it, only vaguely human in shape. It had to have been the Goat Man, 
or a highly elaborate prank. Either way, this was enough to scare us out of camping in that area for a very long time, and I highly doubt anyone had the time, energy, or money to prank us all like that. And if they did, what was the reward? What was the point? The Thing in the Woods From Dorado 15 About a year ago, a few friends and I were camping in New Jersey. We had set up off a hiking trail, but had made sure not to go too far off the trail because one of our friends was exhausted and was easily scared anyway, so for his sake we didn't go too deep. I grew up in the woods most of my life. I had no problem going in there by myself in the dark or any time really. Our plan was to camp for three days, then leave to the shore to spend some time at the water. The first day went very well, had a lot of fun talking, hanging out, telling stories, and especially eating sausages and marshmallows by the fire. It was on the second night that we were there that some very weird things were happening. Growing up in the woods all my life, I could tell when things did not seem right. Imagine someone moving things around in your room. The next time you walk in, you'll know something's up. Well, on the second day, I walked down from the camp in the morning to use the restroom. Not the actual restroom, just to relieve myself. I walked a few minutes in, because I didn't want my friends, who are quite the pranksters, to try and mess with me. As soon as I stopped, the sound of my footsteps crunching leaves stopped, revealing that the woods around me had been silent for an unknown amount of time. In the mornings out here, you would expect birds to be singing or flying around at the very least, but there wasn't a single noise. It was so quiet, my ears began ringing, and I could soon hear my own heartbeat. I swallowed hard. My first thought was, there's probably a mountain lion in the area, and that maybe I should head back and use the restroom later. Suddenly, a large whoosh of wind hit me in the side. It seemed to have come out of nowhere, yet somehow did not disturb a single leaf or tree. It wasn't like wind at all, and was more like something exhaling. I held it in and jogged back to camp. I saw that my friends were standing there quietly. I asked them if they were okay, but they were freaked out about how quiet it was too. We sat down for maybe an hour, sweating, not talking to each other, waiting desperately for the sound to return. And after the longest hour ever, it finally all came back. That night, we were sleeping in our tents when one of my friends woke me up. He told me to be quiet and listen before I could say a word. I did as he told me, and I could hear footsteps just outside the tent. Heavy. You could hear the force with which they were landing on the ground. My friend, who didn't like to think things through, decided it would be a good idea to peek through the opening of the tent a small bit. The moment the shadowy darkness from outside peeks into the tent and hits his eye, 
he jumps back in obvious shock. I asked him what he saw, and replied by saying, There's a horse outside. A, a horse? I almost laughed. I was so relieved I opened the tent and looked out, and standing no more than ten feet from us was definitely not a horse. This was a creature I'd never seen before. I can't say for sure how tall it was, but it was well above me, and I'm 5'10". It had black hair, legs that were hairy, long, and hooved. It had a tail, but its front legs were more like arms, with claws at the end. Five claws. And the first thing that was a dead giveaway that this was no horse were its massive wings. They cast a shadow over our tent, even at that distance. Its face looked like a horse, sure, but it was a very strange face, one that was more rot than flesh. I stared at it for a few seconds, until someone screamed. The thing took off, flapping its wings. I don't think it left the ground, but it definitely tried to. Before I knew it, it was gone. The scream had come from one of my other friends in a separate tent. They'd come out to use the restroom, and saw that thing, and of course got the fright of their life. We packed up and left, and without a word we all agreed. What we just saw had to have been the Jersey Devil. And despite having never believed that story, there was no dissuading me now, because nothing else makes sense. A random mutation in a horse that major wouldn't just magically match the old legend. That was the legend itself. La Llorona from Cara D. This story is from my dad. It happened when he was just a boy. Back then, he was living in El Salvador. It was a foggy night when he and his two uncles, Miguel and Carlos, were going out to the lake. Carlos had brought a gun with him. It was always smart to have some form of protection with you when you went out at night. That night, the lake was quiet. But half an hour into their excursion, they began to hear these noises. It was the obvious sound of a woman sobbing. Miguel and Carlos started to gather their things. My dad asked them what was going on, and they told him it was La Llorona, that when you heard a woman crying in the middle of the night, it was best to hide. As they were out on the water, Miguel began to row back, but progress back to land was slow, as it usually is in a rowboat. But what scared my dad was the fact that the sobbing was getting closer to them, even though they were in the middle of a lake. That was physically impossible. If a crying woman really was in the water and swimming towards them, they would have heard a splash. They would have heard her moving through the water. All they heard was crying. My dad was told to duck down into the boat so that he could not be seen, and seconds later... Carlos fired the rifle. My dad was horrified, but they made it back to land okay, jumped into the car, 
and drove until the sound of crying could no longer be heard. The uncles explained to my father that when you hear the crying and you're a child or have children, they must hide because if they are seen by La Llorona, she will take them away forever. Well, the next time the woods go quiet, turn up the beatbox and throw it at a tree, because the woods going quiet is just starting to get annoying, and the woods could definitely use some MC Hammer on loop. Good night. If you enjoyed this episode of Darkness Prevails, be sure to like, share, comment, and subscribe. If you have a story of your own, share it with us at darkstories.org or darknessprevails.org slash submit. If you want to support the show, you can donate to my Patreon, shop in my merch store, or invest in acorns using my referral link, all linked in the description below. Now, as usual, here are my five favorite early comments from the previous video, titled, A Forest Ranger's Worst Nightmare. Four True Scary Stories. SCP-106 says, Spoopy. You put an S on your poopy and spelled spoopy, but both those words work. Yeeter Yang says, Don't notice this comment. Oh, well, I guess I have to die now. Jasmine Perez says, Just refreshed for new scary stories and here you are. Well, someone needs to order you some pizza if you're gonna wait. I feel like it takes forever to put out new videos now. Worst Nightmare says, Yes, I am. Thanks for noticing. Number first. Your comment was my worst nightmare. Because I'm confused, and number first doesn't make sense. But hey, all the power to you, my friend. And Aiden Moses says, Spoo. I don't know what that is, but I'm going to guess someone's child took their phone or tablet and typed this out on a random video, and I happen to be the lucky lottery winner. It's always good to hear from you, Aiden. Well, this brings us to the end of this Darkness Prevails episode, but don't you worry, because more scary stories are coming out soon, so stay tuned. Until next time, here are the credits to my amazing patrons who continue to donate. They're amazing people. Remember, stay safe out there, and stay creepy, because this world is a strange one. Animal rescue is an honorable job. Saving people's beloved pets in desperate situations. Rescuing wildlife when it gets in a bind. It's a job I think we can all respect. But what happens when it's the animal that puts you in a situation where there's no rescue? Today we have five allegedly true scary stories featuring elusive monsters, the next level of sleep paralysis, and an animal rescue that turned into a life-or-death encounter with a nightmare creature. Enjoy! If you have a story of your own, be sure to share it with us at darkstories.org or darknessprevails.org slash submit. Now, let's begin. The Thing of Snakelick from Air Nomad 64 My name is Tate. I'm 19, and I'm from a small town in Kentucky, 
I was with my friend when this happened, and we were going to his house so he could grab some clothes to stay the night. He had gone through a rough breakup recently, and didn't want to take the normal way, because he didn't want to pass by his ex's house, so we decided to take a back road called Snake Lick. Keep in mind it was around 2 or 3 in the morning at the time, and these roads are extremely curvy, so you have to drive really slow, or else you'll wreck. We had just gotten off the highway, Highway 27, and turned onto Snake Lick. The moment we made it onto the road, we had passed a dead tree. That was when my friend and I heard something hit the roof of our truck. Did you hear that? My friend asked me. Yeah, I said. What do you think it was? He shrugged, and then we rolled up our windows. Not long after, we began to hear scratching and pounding coming from where the thing had landed on the roof. I was freaking out so I slammed on the gas. So I was going 50 to 60 in no time, despite how curvy the road was. But this thing just stayed up there, scratching and pounding on the metal of the roof. This continued until we took a curve wrong, causing the truck to slide out. Luckily, I didn't hit anything, and neither me nor my friend were harmed. But the noises had stopped, when we got to my friend's house, we quickly checked out the roof. There we found claw marks and a small handprint. A handprint too small to be either of ours, though it was kind of human in shape. It didn't take us long to look into Snake Lick. Apparently, several people have had weird encounters with strange entities in that neck of the woods. This also reminded me of an old story I'd heard. You see, out by Snake Lick, there's an old brick building, built in the side of a hill, and people claim that there were babies buried in those walls. To this day, I have no idea if it was some weird animal, a ghost of a child, or something entirely different, but I know it was real. I'll never forget that irritating, terrifying, metallic clawing sound coming right from above me. All I do know is that whatever the thing was, it was mad, and it was ready to take the roof off to get to us. If you find yourself driving on Snake Lick, be careful. The Rescue From Kim B I live in the rural end of a village in England. I've always thought I was very lucky with my line of work and where I lived. I was employed by an animal rescue charity. This tended to be wildlife call-outs more than domestic, but I was pretty handy at getting a cat out of a tree. Back in 1995, there was a particular night while on call that I'll never forget. It started out as any normal night. I had just decided to watch a movie when I received my first call of the evening around 9 p.m. The caller advised that some livestock on his farm had been found dead in unknown circumstances. I informed him that he would need to call the police, or RSPCA, as we didn't deal with dead animals, and I politely ended the call. A bit of time had passed after that when the phone rang again. It was the same guy, though this time they sounded slightly different. He spoke in almost a whisper 
like he was trying to filter his voice. The person got upset that no one would help them, begging for me to come out to help him because a wild creature was hunting on their farm. I told him I would see what I can do. Then I took down the address. When I checked it, it was only 30 minutes from my house. So I called my colleague Joe, who lives closer to the village, and worked the same shift as me for about five years. We talked about the call, and decided that we should go and see what we can do to help. After all, the past few nights had been pretty quiet. Soon enough, I pulled up to the address. I knew that Joe wouldn't be far behind me. I could see the farmhouse to my right, and the top of a barn behind it. There was also a glow from the back from what I assumed to be the lights in the yard. I had a quick look around from the drive, but couldn't see anyone. After about twenty minutes, Joe finally arrived. As he got out of his car, he told me that the place gave him a really creepy feeling. I recall Joe saying, This is a farm, right? Then why is it so quiet? I told him to get a grip. But a second later, I realized he had a point. I was beginning to feel uneasy. We were making our way up to the front of the house when something made us both stop in our tracks. There was movement in the bushes a good couple of feet away to the left of us. Suddenly, there was a mighty growl. It was so deep it hit me in the bottom of my stomach, making all my senses go crazy. It was truly a fight-or-flight moment. I turned my head round to Joe, and I whispered to him, What the hell was that? Joe was about to answer when we heard whatever it was in the bushes moving again. Something big, something dark, ran out, heading away from us down a small path that appeared to lead round to the back of the house. I did not get a good look at this thing, but I knew it was something that I'd never seen before. We stood there for a few minutes gathering ourselves. We looked at each other, and without a word, decided that we should continue up to the house and go knock on their door. After all, we were still professionals. But feeling a bit shaken up, we approached the porch steadily, then knocked on the door. I remember Joe kept his back to me, constantly checking the bushes and path to our left. After a few minutes, there was no response, but we could hear that the TV was still on somewhere inside. I knocked again, louder this time, and we waited. But there was no answer. While we just stood there and waited, I thought about what we were going to do. When Joe spoke up, it made me jump a mile high. He suggested we should go and try to find the back door. I was surprised, as Joe could be a bit of a wimp at times. We looked around from where we stood and saw the only path which led round to the back was the same way that the dark creature had taken. I decided that we weren't going down there, so I desperately looked for another way. I found a gate which led to the yard. We hopped over because it was chained shut. We stayed close to the house and looked into the windows to see if we could find anyone. Again, there was nobody but I could see a glow of light coming from what I thought to be the kitchen. By this point, something deep down inside of me was screaming for me to turn around, 
get back in the car and drive away. I ignored this feeling and carried on, looking around the property. I'll never forget how silent that place was. It was really getting to me. As we made our way around, we reached the yard, and I pointed out to Joe that the back door was open. I remember thinking that this whole situation was so wrong, and we are not the people who should be here. We made our way over to the back door anyway. I had a sudden overwhelming feeling that we shouldn't be outside right now, and that we were being watched. I know we shouldn't have, but we entered the house, calling out to anyone that was there, hoping that someone would respond. I took a quick scan around the kitchen and noticed that the phone had been pulled off the wall. It was lying on the floor with one of our info cards beside it. On the back, I noticed my number had been handwritten. While we were stood in the house staring at this, I still had the feeling we were being watched from somewhere outside, so I quickly shut the back door behind us. The second the door was closed, there was a deep, low growl that came from the other side. But this time, it was ever so different. I'll never forget the sound of it. Whatever it was, it was trying to say something. It sounded like broken speech. After a few terrifying minutes, the sound came again. I stood there, utterly petrified. Something then began to scratch at the door, sniffing at it too. I turned to Joe, who had turned pale with fear, gesturing to him to keep quiet. Eventually, the sounds from the door stopped, and I heard it outside moving away. That creature. We stood there like statues for a few minutes, till we felt it was safe to move or make any sort of sound. I thought I should have a look around the house, so I slowly walked through the kitchen into a hallway and saw the glow of the TV coming from a room to the right. I called out again, but this time softer, still terrified and intimidated by that experience at the door. I needed to know if someone was in here, but I was not getting any answer. I walked to the room with the TV in it and looked around. There was no one to be found. I found the remote on the arm of a chair and muted the TV. I didn't want to turn it off for some reason. To this day, I still don't know why. I made my way back and noticed a window at the end of the hall left the kitchen doorway. There was something moving just outside of it. The window overlooked the yard of the farm and the joining barns. It was lit up by the yard lights which seemed to be attached to the house from the shadows that were being cast. I looked over to check on Joe who was still in the kitchen. He hadn't moved at all, but he did look at me, fear in his eyes. I pointed toward the window near me, which later on he told me he couldn't see from where he was. I moved closer to try and get a better understanding of what was going on out there. From the window, I couldn't see any movement from anyone or anything, just farm equipment and random stuff thrown about. But then, something moved. I turned my head quickly, 
trying to get a glimpse of it. What I saw was a black mass moving along the shadows of the barn opposite the house. It looked to be sniffing around, like it was trying to find something. As everything else around us was entirely silent, it wasn't hard to hear this thing sniffing and growling. It was still difficult to see what it actually was. From that distance, and with this amount of light, it was just a black mass. If anything, it reminded me of a dog. It walked on all fours, but its legs were twisted. It was big and dark. It was blacker than the shadows it was in. Feeling creeped out, I slowly moved away from the window, keeping low in the hopes it couldn't see me, and I headed back into the kitchen to be with Joe. 1 a.m. was approaching. I remember this because I kept looking at the cuckoo clock on the wall. The kitchen was old-fashioned, stained yellow with net curtains on the window above the sink. The walls were covered with dated and stained wallpaper. I kept thinking, this place would be nice if it had a fresh look of paint. By this point, I was getting very tired and achy from sitting in the same place. Joe and I hadn't said much to each other in the last few hours, in fear of the thing outside hearing us. I looked over and Joe's eyes were shut, so I gave him a slight nudge as I couldn't believe he was falling asleep in a time like this. He sat up straight and looked at me in a panic. I whispered, it's okay, telling him that we either need to lock this house down and stay until sunrise, or we need to try to make a break for the car. As it was wintertime, the sun would not be rising until 8 or 9 a.m., and I did not want to stay in this place for another seven to eight hours. We sat there in silence for a bit longer, thinking over the options. Then, in the distance, we heard the growling again. It sounded like it was getting closer, though. Keeping low, I made a move for the hallway. I headed to the front door to see if I could open it, but the handle wouldn't budge. I thought it must have been locked. Fed up and just generally pissed off, because we were stuck in someone else's house, I have to say that I used to have a very short temper. I stood up straight and walked back into the kitchen. The back door was the kind of staple-style door, with a top half and a lower half. I unlatched the top half and screamed at the top of my lungs, Would you just saw off? I quickly slammed the door shut, Joe looking at me in utter shock. Then, from outside... We heard the growl again. The scratching and sniffing grew louder at the door. My anger had caused us to become in danger again. I shook my head and silently apologized to Joe. We waited for another hour, not moving, until these sounds finally went away. I wanted to get out of this house out of this situation. I made my way back into the hall to try and look for a key for the front. I was not taking any chances leaving via the back. I searched around the few rooms on the lower ground, all of which needed to be fixed up. I found a key in a dresser drawer in the living room, but it wasn't the one I needed. Feeling truly trapped and getting to the point of giving up, I decided to try the front door again. This time I checked every inch and found it wasn't actually locked. It was latched. 
Finding this out, I laughed so hard at myself, all while trying to keep quiet. I was making my way back to the kitchen, when I saw a silhouette-like figure in the window staring directly at me. I froze in the spot, staring back at whatever it was. I still couldn't get a look at it, as it was so black, and it was really dark outside in the first place. I couldn't see any eyes, but I knew it was looking at me. I could feel it. It was going right through me. I thought this was it. It's now or never. I was close enough to the kitchen that I could see Joe's back. I softly called his name through my teeth. Still locking eyes with this creature, I could feel myself getting more terrified. I called out for Joe again, and he finally came over to the doorway. I whispered in a tone through my teeth for him to get down low, and that we were going to make a run for the cars. I remember Joe looking at me and nodding his head. I told him to not look toward the window, which was to his left, and to just head to the door. Joe got down low and headed toward the exit. When he made it to the door, I told him where he could find the latch, to get a hold of it as we were going to run as fast as we could to the cars. After waiting a few minutes, I turned and shouted, Now! He unlatched the door and threw it open. I ran out so fast, I recall turning around just as I left the door and looking at the window. I could tell that the black mass of the creature had gone. We reached the cars, which luckily neither of us had locked. My car was the closest, so I dove into the driver's seat, and Joe jumped in the back. In the corner of my vision, I could see the dark figure moving quickly down the path at the side of the house. It was heading right towards us. This time, I could have sworn I saw it running on two legs, not four, making me even more confused as to what the hell kind of animal it was. Its stride looked awkward and cumbersome. Feeling seriously beyond freaked out, I started the car and the two of us sped down the lane. I went straight to the police station. I had gone so fast I nearly crashed the car. Even though it was likely the police wouldn't believe us, I just wanted to be somewhere that I could feel a bit more safe. When we made it to the station, Joe and I got out, looking at each other, and laughed with relief. Then I looked at the car, and noticed that there was a massive dent in the shape of a footprint on the bonnet. It almost looked like a dog's paw print, but it was bigger and misshapen. I looked at Joe and just shook my head. It was now nearly 4 a.m. and I'd given my statement to the police. I knew some of the officers quite well. They saw how scared Joe and I were. They assured me they'd go to check out the farm when they were able to the next day. Not feeling in the right mind to be alone, Joe said I could stay at his house as it was nearer to the village than mine. We made it to Joe's, and we both just sat on the sofa, not really saying much to each other. Joe then realized he had left his car at the farm, so he had a call to make. I must have fallen asleep, as the next thing I knew I was waking up, and it was sunny outside. I called the station to check if they had attended the farm. They advised me that officers had been and found that the front door was shut, and that they were not able to open it. 
they could hear the TV on inside as well. This made my skin crawl, because I had muted the TV. They advised that the officers had gained entry through an open rear door and found no one inside. They checked over the barn in the yard and didn't see anything unusual. Joe had asked about his car and they agreed to bring it back for him, as he refused to go to the farm to collect it, even during the day. After a few days passed, I received another call from the station. They had continued their search and were informing me that they had found the farmer, who had locked himself in a small storage room in the barn opposite the house, and it took them a while to convince him to leave. Once he was out, he just kept rambling about the darkness and how the shadow had killed his animals. I still do not know what was going on at that farm. I have no idea what we encountered, and this is easily my worst experience working in animal rescue. Tim, the Drowned Boy, from Zodiac Hunter We lived in Washington State. I was seven years old, and my sister, Lucy, was five. Our town was small, so we knew everyone in it. So when my sister suddenly asked to go play with Tim, I had no idea who she was talking about. We didn't know a Tim anywhere around. I asked her if it was one of her friend's parents, but no, she said. He was our age. I asked her what he looked like, and she said he had white skin and even whiter hair. What kind of white do you mean? I asked. And the first thing she did was go to grab a gallon of milk. That's impossible, I said. No one's skin is that white. She even said that his eyes were gray like the moon. She had to have been making this up, right? I went to my parents and asked if a new family had moved in. When they asked why, I told them about this Tim, explaining his appearance. She covered her mouth and her eyes began to look watery. I was of course confused, but she told me to sit down. I did as she told me. She then began to tell me a story about the Martinez family, who had a son named Tim. In the nearby lake that was down the street on our road, the same one where we went swimming every summer, the Martinez family went swimming as well. They arrived on a day when no one else was around. It was peaceful at least, but a certain warning that they ignored was the fact that there were alligators in the lake. Tim's parents ended up being attacked and killed. As an orphan, Tim bounced between foster parents, and before long, he went missing, only to be found at the same lake, drowned. The police said he had drowned himself. Being only seven at the time and hearing a story so tragic and horrifying, it's something that stuck with me forever. We live in Texas now, but I still remember that tale. I still remember my sister describing him, and I wonder, did she continue to see him after we left? Rest in peace, Tim. Late Night Walk in Deep Chicago From Anonymous 
I'm a 15-year-old girl living with my mom and little brother. I live in a really, really sketchy neighborhood in downtown Chicago. One night, I was walking home from a party with my friend Jay. Before I start my story, I'm going to give you a little background. It's a pretty crime-ridden part of our town, and there are pretty weird dudes out there. But this was different. I was walking home when this woman popped up out of nowhere. She looked to be around 70. She was holding this bag that you get from your typical grocery store. She looked to be limping, too. I couldn't tell if she was injured or old or both. She came up to us and said that she was a disabled veteran and that she would really appreciate it if someone, anyone, would help her walk home. She said that she lived a block away and the only reason she wanted us to walk her home was that she had been injured in the war. Well, being the sweet 15-year-old I was, I said we could walk her home. After this incident, Jay and I realized there was something off about this woman. First of all, while we don't believe in stereotypes, this woman was tall. I mean absolutely colossal. She said she was an old woman, but she was nearly seven feet tall. That should have been a red flag to us. But we walked her home. When we got to the house, she thanked us and offered us some cookies inside. Fresh baked, she said. We declined, and she thanked us again, and we left. The next day, on the news, we saw that there was a serial killer on the loose. The news said that they were disguised as an old woman who claimed to be a disabled veteran. The report said that he lured young women into his home, claiming to be an old woman, and that he needed someone to help him walk home. Then he would offer them something inside, and kill them. Jay and I were obviously beyond shock, and knew that we had barely escaped a painful and probably slow death. If a strange, seven-foot-tall woman asks you to come inside her house out of nowhere, you might want to say no. The Next Level of Sleep Paralysis From Odd Soul I've been suffering from insomnia, and sleep paralysis often comes with it. It happened so much that I began to get a grip on it. I began to see the signs early, and I could usually snap myself out of it before it came on full blast. Then they started evolving. I would have dreams that started normally and changed suddenly towards a sleep paralysis experience. And then this happened. A dream that wasn't a dream. I was in a hotel room with my best friend and my sister. There was another woman with us, though I didn't recognize her. The room was quite plain. The walls were grayish-white in color and empty. There was a double bed at the middle of the room. There were no windows. I was sitting on the bed with my sister and best friend. Behind my back were the door and a walk-in linen closet. I turned to see the woman, the one I didn't know, going into the closet to get bedsheets. We were chatting and laughing out loud, having a great time. Just a normal, any-day situation, I thought. I was in a great mood, feeling relaxed, when suddenly I felt a shift. A 
At that point, I must say, I knew all the time I was dreaming, as I often do. When I felt the dream change, I didn't expect it. I felt threatened. The woman who had walked into the linen closet, her chattering stopped mid-sentence. Now I was half awake, and I could feel the sleep paralysis taking hold of me. I was back in my actual bedroom, in my own reality. I was trying my best to shake it off before something happened. Then there was this strange noise coming from my closet. I could see from the corner of my eye the woman sliding out of the closet door like a melted wax figure. She was bending in an unnatural way, and the sounds she made were sickening. It's hard to describe. It's almost like she was laughing, but in the most perturbed way. She was coming towards my actual bed. I was trying to wake myself up. I felt my body twist and turn on the bed, my hands twisting in weird angles. And when I was fully back and awake, I got up and walked around the room to make sure that I really was not in a dream anymore. It took me a long time to calm down after that. I barricaded my closet door shut, because that was terrifying. It was the first time a dream leaked into reality in such a vivid way. And I was confused. Was the woman a dream? Or was she in my room for real? These days, the thought of having sleep paralysis again terrifies me. And I pray that it doesn't happen. Or at the very least, that I can shake myself out of it before it fully takes over. Well, it's getting late. You'd better go off to bed. But first, uh, check the window. I think I saw someone standing there. Oh, there was nothing there. Wait, check the closet. I think I heard a voice. Oops, nothing again. My bad. Then rest your head. Fall asleep. But don't be surprised if you find yourself awake and unable to move. Good night. If you enjoyed this episode of Darkness Prevails, be sure to like, share, comment, and subscribe. If you have a story of your own to share, share it with us at darkstories.org or darknessprevails.org. You can support the show by checking the links in the description. There's a link to my Patreon, to my merch store, and a link where you can start investing with acorns, which helps me out too. Now, as usual, here are my five favorite early comments from the previous full episode, titled... The Man with Empty Eye Sockets. Six True Horror Stories. Shara Vore says, You do stories on melon heads. By the way, your channel is the highlight of my day. Are you talking about bald people? Some of them have a rather strong punch, so I wouldn't be making fun of them. Caitlin the White Werewolf says, Wow, that looks like Eyeless Jack without the mask. Then he would be Maskless Jack, right? Banana Mukbang says, I woke up from a dream in which I died. Twice. Does this mean my soul was transferred, thus waking up? Also, hello, Father Darkness. That just means you're now two shifts away from your original reality. Welcome to the new one. Cat and Dog 111 says, Oh goody, a new thing of nightmares. But question, are you still working on the Stickman video? I tried to. I asked for stories a lot, but didn't get enough stories to make a full video on it. 
but maybe I'll just narrate what I got, because I definitely want to do the Stickman video too. Chico Jones says, Cheese. What's your favorite? I'm partial to Swiss and Sharp Cheddar. And Luke Skywalker Indoor says, The guy in the thumbnail looks a bit like Voldemort. Oh, please. Voldemort is way sexier than that. Well, that brings us to the end of this Darkness Prevails episode. But don't you worry. More scary stories are on the way soon. So stay tuned. Until next time, here are the credits to my amazing patrons who continue to donate. They're awesome people. Remember, stay safe out there and stay creepy. Because this world is a strange one. Today's episode features the creepy things you encounter when living in rural regions. From ghosts that want to steal children, to demonic women who wear horses' heads. Get ready for a wild and terrifying episode with five allegedly true scary stories that will have you hugging the asphalt of the city for a while. If you have a story of your own, share it with us at darkstories.org or darknessprevails.org. I'd love to hear about some alien encounters and stories from small towns. Now, let's begin. My Shadow Man Experience From The Lady Nix This story occurred when I was twelve. We had just moved into the middle of nowhere in North Carolina not long before this, and as such... I was kind of happy to find any friends. I've always been socially awkward and found it hard to make friends. So when I was invited to a sleepover weekend by my new friend, I was thrilled. She lived in a pretty big house on a huge amount of property. We had a lot of fun, exploring the woods, watching movies, etc. I was happy until it came time to go to bed because that's when my friend began to describe the man. She said that there was a special man who lived in their house, a man who was mean, and that I should keep an eye out for him. I was definitely sketched out as I settled into my mattress on the ground next to her bed. She told me that the man came every night. He would pull her hair, or do something else annoying and unpleasant. Then she said something that really freaked me out. She said that she liked having me here, because he wasn't interested in her with me there, and that he said he found me fascinating. She didn't use words like that typically, so it really sounded like it came from someone else. This was the first time I'd seen her act so weird, and it really scared me, to be honest. I quickly decided she was just messing with me, saying these things to scare me, so I laughed and told her that it was a good try. She wasn't about to scare me that easily. She gave me a weird look and said goodnight, flopping onto her bed, pulling the covers up. I followed her example and quickly fell asleep. I don't know how long I was asleep, but I woke up to the feeling of having my hair yanked hard. It stung. 
I saw that my hair had gone under the bed. It was really long back then, so I figured it got caught on something. I reached under her bed to feel what it was that it was caught on. It was too dark to see, but I could hear my friend lightly snoring. I didn't want to wake her up, so I kept the lights off. As I found the ends of my hair under the bed with my fingertips, I realized it wasn't caught on anything. And just as I realized that, something grabbed my wrist, pulling me hard, almost yanking me under the bed entirely. I screamed, and my friend leapt up, turning on her lap. When she did, I saw a patch of darkness that did not lighten with the light. It looked like a hand and an arm. Someone was trying to pull me under the bed. Suddenly, my friend grabbed me by the ankles and pulled the other way, screaming, No, you can't have her! Over and over. I was so terrified. I was beyond tears and trembling all over. In a few pulls, she got me out from under the bed, and her parents came running in to her sitting on my mattress with me, both of us shaking in terror. They asked what was going on, and before I could find my voice, my friend told her parents I had just had a nightmare. After a bit of back and forth, they decided to move me to the guest room at the other end of the Jack and Jill bathroom from my friend's bedroom. As I was lying there in the dark, I watched a shadow shaped like a man walk from my friend's room through the bathroom and over to me. I could hear my friend softly saying, Please leave her alone. Please, please let me keep at least one friend. I was horrified, pressing my back against the headboard to get away from the shadow. It had stopped. It was standing at the doorway between the bathroom and the bedroom I was in, and I could feel it staring at me, even though I could not see its eyes. I turned and reached over, clicking on the lamp. I looked back, and the shadow man was gone. I looked around and did not see anything at first, and then in the corner where the lamplight did not reach, I saw it. I plucked up my courage and asked, Why are you bothering me? The part that looked like its head tilted, and I heard a male voice speak. We're friends. Every hair on my body stood up on end. I shuddered. I felt like something was pushing against me, trying to crush me, to force me to give up. I stayed up the rest of the night, watching that thing in the corner, making sure that it didn't move any closer. I stayed up until the sun came up. When I heard my friend's parents moving around downstairs, I quickly packed all my things as fast as I could, headed through my friend's room to the stairs to go down, so I could beg to be taken home. My friend had left before me, and when I was in the doorway of her room, about five feet from the top of the stairs, I was suddenly in the air. I flew down the stairs, skidding several feet, stopping inches from slamming through a glass door. My friend and her parents gasped, staring wide-eyed at me. When they asked if I was okay, I simply cried and begged to be taken home. They gave in quickly, and I cried, not speaking, all the way home. Sadly, 
Even after getting dozens of invitations to go back to her house, I was too afraid to. And I guess I lost a friend. I don't know what would have happened if that thing had dragged me under the bed completely. The Creepy Woods of Southern New Hampshire From Nicole B. I grew up in northern Massachusetts, but spent a good bit of my time in southern New Hampshire. The area of Temple, Milford, and Wilton has expansive forest that always gives me the creeps on different occasions. I don't know, but something seems off about that area. It's not surprising since there's a lot of history there, a lot of old foundations, a lot of old cellar holes, and even the famous Vale End Haunted Cemetery. My best friend's parents were divorced, so she would spend weekends at her father's house in Temple. He lived at the end of a dirt road, down a long dirt driveway. The house itself was dark and looming, and it was surrounded on three sides by forest that butted up against the house, and the front yard was just a driveway and a pond. My friend always told me she feared the woods and would not look out the windows at night due to how close the forest was. She's not quite into the paranormal like I was. She remains quite skeptical, but she'll entertain it for my sake, because I was always obsessed with anything creepy. I started visiting her on weekends, staying overnight. We would get ourselves so scared on nighttime walks and later night drives, I could tell multiple stories about the things we've heard and saw that made us quickly scurry back home. But I'll focus on a couple of these events. One night, my friend and I were in her room. She was upset about something. I think it was a recent breakup she had. She told me she needed to step outside for a few minutes to blow off some steam, and possibly take a short walk. I asked if she was crazy to be going out alone like that. I offered to come with her, but she told me, No, I'll be back in a few minutes. I heard her head downstairs and open the front door. She was only gone maybe a minute before I heard her rush back inside, running back up the steps. She was breathless and in tears. It took a long while of begging her to know what happened before she'd answer me. Like I said, she's more skeptical than I am, so to see her so scared, I was admittedly excited, curious about what had scared her. Finally, she was able to tell me, when she had stepped outside and closed the front door behind her, she saw a pair of unfamiliar glasses hanging on the door knocker. These were the large, thick-rimmed variety with red frames, sort of the 70s or 80s molester style, with thick lenses. She had no idea where they come from, but she felt compelled to put them on. I'll try to describe it the way she did. I put on the glasses and looked out into the yard. There was a bright circle of light out near my dad's van. It seemed to be hovering. I'm not sure if it was actually an orb of light, or something reflecting something. Maybe the rational part of me thought it could be another light source that it was collecting in the center of the lenses, as the lenses were pretty thick. Either way, I was transfixed on it, 
and while this was happening, I heard something to my right crashing through the woods towards me. I have no idea what it was, but something in my brain was telling me it was dangerous. Not a normal animal, something huge and hellish instead. I don't know why my mind was convincing me it had to be something like that, but it was such a strong feeling. I stayed in a bit of a trance until I snapped out of it, throwing the glasses to the ground and running inside. She explained her story to me. Meanwhile, I was excited and wanted to go down to find the glasses for myself. She was begging me not to. She was very serious that something bad had happened. We waited until morning before venturing outside. I did eventually find the glasses. I was playing with them, trying them on, etc. My friend did not find this amusing. We asked her father whose glasses they were, but he said he had never seen them before. He said he had just found them on the doorstep one day. I still have these glasses, though I keep them hidden away because they make me nervous. My friend wants nothing to do with them, and despises the fact that we didn't just trash and burn them. Fast forward a couple of summers, we were once again at her father's place at night. I knew I had to go out to my car to grab something, and I dreaded this. I didn't want to go out to the yard and make the fifty-foot trek to my car in the dark. Eventually, I had to, so I dragged myself outside. Immediately, I was hit with even more dread as I walked toward the car. I made the errand quick, and then started to walk back toward the front door. My fear heightened and my attention focused toward the side of the house. Right then, from the area that I had been watching, there was a loud, whooping sound. My first thought was, there was no way there was some sort of primate or monkey in the woods, but that's what it sounded like. Some sort of ape. I doubted it was an owl, because it didn't sound like one at all. And whatever it was, it had come from ground level, not from the trees. It wasn't a coyote either, because I was making my presence known, and the vocalization sounded to me like it was coming at me. Either way, I was terrified and ran quickly back inside. Only years later did I find out that Bigfoot supposedly made whooping sounds. I've been trying to listen to different animal calls on YouTube, but I can't find a single thing that matched this sound. While the loon is the closest, it still did not match very closely. Years later, another friend of mine was telling me that she was mountain biking in that general area. She kept turning around because she described a sound that was mimicking the sound of her bike, only closer behind her. She kept stopping to let the other ride pass, only to realize there wasn't anyone there. Then she described hearing a sudden and loud whoop behind her, followed by a clicking sound, similar to the way your tongue clicks on the roof of your mouth. She said it sounded human, not like a bird. Her story is what reminded me of my experiences in those woods. As it turns out, there have been Bigfoot sightings not far from there. But I'll never totally feel comfortable in those forests.
The Orphan Ghost from Cadenogno. From age 16 to 18, I was in a treatment center for adolescents and behavioral issues. I was a foster kid, and I had a lot of behavioral problems in my teen years. I was also diagnosed with bipolar disorder, so that obviously didn't help. Now, the treatment center was located in a rural area in Missouri, and had previously been a Catholic orphanage in the middle of nowhere from the late 1800s to 1915, when it had first burned down. It had then reopened as a boarding school for girls in the 1970s, and then it was taken over as a psychiatric facility for troubled children and teens. If you've ever been in any sort of adolescent facility, whether a group home or a treatment center, each one has a unique culture and set of traditions. Teenagers are weird, and it creates a sense of camaraderie among people you're going to be spending several months with. At this particular facility, there was an initiation ritual involving being told the legend of the orphan ghost. Legend has it, back when the building was an orphanage, there was a really mean nun named Sister Florence who loved punishing the orphans. A little orphan girl named Mary, who was about eight years old, was a perfect little girl and had managed to earn the fondness of Sister Florence, as she rarely misbehaved. The nun often brought her special treats, resulting in the other children bullying Mary out of jealousy whenever Sister Florence wasn't looking. This angered Mary. She began to resent Sister Florence and acting out against her, pulling pranks and generally misbehaving. One day during lunch, Mary took a knife and stabbed Sister Florence in the throat. She bled out before stabbing herself in the chest. Now to this day, if you walk through the halls near the old chapel, you can hear little orphan Mary playing tricks and Sister Florence shouting punishments. When I first heard the story, I thought it was a load of crap. The building had been remodeled several times over and was in no way close to its original configuration. The chapel that we used wasn't even the original chapel. It did turn out, however, the original chapel had been located in the same spot as the unit where I resided was. I'll admit, that was a little spooky, but it didn't do much to make me believe those stories. I went about daily life at the center and completely forgot about it after about a week. It wasn't until about four months into my stay that I was reminded of the story, by, of all things, having a dream about it. But, once again, I ignored it. But that night after dinner, all hell broke loose. As I said, this was a facility for teens with behavioral problems. So you can imagine there was quite a bit of issues that could arise, especially on a unit full of girls. That night, things got particularly out of hand, and several people began acting out. And not just on our unit. The staff who took care of us had walkie-talkies, where they would call code reds for assisted takedowns and sedations, when things got really out of control. And that night, the walkie-talkies would sound off every couple of minutes, with new reports of incidents taking place all over the place. We had about 300 teens housed here in 16 units and I think by the end of the night, they had at least 50 sedated or secluded. They even had to bring in the local police to assist, because there simply wasn't enough staff to handle it all. 
By the time everything had calmed down, it was almost midnight, and staff sent us to bed. Around this time, I had some pretty severe insomnia, and wasn't sleeping much. But that night, despite the adrenaline rush from the chaos that had just occurred, I fell asleep almost immediately. But when I woke up, it was still pitch black in my room, save for the sliver of light creeping through the door from the day room. I shared a room with two other girls, and I sat up, confused as to why I woke up. One of my roommates was younger, only thirteen at the time. Let's call her R. My first assumption was that R had stayed awake reading by the light of the door, but when I looked closer, I could see the even rise and fall of her chest as she snored lightly. Confused, I looked over at my other roommate, D, who was lying on her side facing me, eyes wide. She put her fingers to her lips, and then we heard it again, this time followed by a shout. Naughty. It sounded like a grown woman, but deeper and more ethereal. It sounded as if the sound was reverberating from an entirely different dimension. At this point, our other roommate began to stir, sitting up in bed. When she began to speak, we motioned for her to stay quiet, and we waited. Maybe five minutes later, something happened again. The door to the room slammed closed. The three of us screamed and my two roommates scrambled off their beds and onto mine, because mine was furthest from the door. We huddled together as more giggling echoed around us, followed by another shout of, Naughty, naughty children. And then the door swung open, and we screamed before realizing it was just a staff member coming to see why we had closed our door as it was against the safety policy of the unit to have our doors closed. Before we could be reprimanded, R began crying and rambling about the giggling and shouting we had heard. D and Tri calmed her while she explained in more detail what had happened to the staffer, who actually listened, before calling the on-call nurse to bring up sleeping pills for the three of us to get some rest. The following day, I was called into a meeting with our unit psychiatrist, and I was asked to recount the incident to her. R&D did the same, and they called a meeting between the psychiatrist, therapist, and social workers involved in our treatment. At the end of the day, though, they diagnosed it as a shared delusion, gave us more medication, started giving us more sleeping pills every night. I know it does sound a little suspicious. Three mentally ill teenagers in a treatment center for literally being crazy claiming to see ghosts is hardly new or shocking. But before this incident, I'd never experienced an auditory hallucination in my life, nor had R nor D. The staff was determined to play it off as a delusion, but the story spread and soon enough everyone in the facility believed that we had encountered the orphan ghost. At the end of the day, we knew what really happened in that room, and I fully believe that whatever energy Sister Florence and Orphan Mary were putting out caused the general chaos that had occurred beforehand. While nothing else happened during the duration of my stay, they added my story to the initiation ritual whenever we got a new resident and it became an official part of the legend. It's been twelve years now, 
but I sometimes wonder if they still tell my story. Stranger in the Dark from Anonymous This story is about my grandmother. She was in middle school and lived in a small rural town at a dead-end road. At the other side of the town, there was a cornfield where you could see the top half of a mental hospital. Sometimes the patients from the building would escape and cross the field, only to be recaptured there by the employees. My grandmother was around 13 at the time when this incident occurred. One night, very late, she was taking her German Shepherd out for a walk to just get out of the house for a while. The ground was covered with snow that was just over her ankles, and a cold breeze occasionally passed by them. When she made it to the other side of town, she stopped and looked around the empty, quiet public square. All of a sudden, her dog bolted back toward an alleyway behind her with a leash. Instead of chasing him, she sat down for a while and admired the black sky above. She gazed at the stars as they glistened brightly while her dog was digging around in a trash can. Then she heard the noise of cornstalks from a distance. She looked forward and saw the top half of the hospital past the cornfield. Right in front of the field was a bald man in a hospital gown. He was standing there, looking at her. At this moment, she stood up and continued to look back at the stranger who was now smiling. This unsettled her so much that she froze in fear as the man kept staring. Then he began to run towards her full speed with that creepy smile on his face. This convinced my grandmother to move and get out of there. She sprinted to her dog and lifted him without hesitation. Her adrenaline kicked in and she carried him down the alleyway, fighting the snow. When she could not carry her dog any longer, she fell to the ground, but she picked herself back up because she was too scared to rest. She followed the road back to her house as her dog trailed behind her, and once she reached the front door, she fell to her knees and cried. My grandmother did not see the man again. Luckily, she had outrun him, or at least got out of the way fast enough that he could not find her. She still wonders what the man's intention was, and why he may have escaped from that place, or rather, why he was there at all. Obviously, he was dangerous and unpredictable. I Saw La Llorona from Silver Bullet 54 Farms, cities, and heat. These are the first three things you think of when you hear the name Texas. Or if you're a sports fan, you think of Aggies and Longhorns. I think of the spring of 2014. That was when I saw something that was nothing short of bizarre. I'd always heard of the ghost stories coming from the state. I've heard of everything from there, from the ghost lights in Marfa, to demons in San Antonio, to werewolves in El Paso. As expected with such a big state, the stories could be true. I've always been partial to the werewolf stories and the stories of the Marfa lights. In 2014, I still had Visit the South on my bucket list. Due to the way things were, I recruited a couple of my high school classmates to come with me. 
Isaiah, and Richard. They were backup and bodyguards more than anything else. When they asked me why we were going to Texas, I honestly said, there's a lot of stuff there I want to explore. They figured that reason was as good as any, and they agreed to go with me. As he drove, Richard asked us, Did you guys hear of the chick called La Llorona? My girlfriend won't shut up about it. The previous year, I got a book called Weird U.S., so I had heard of La Llorona, which meant the crier, if I recalled correctly. If that's not freaky, her story is. From the legend that I heard, she was a woman who lived in Texas where the Rio Grande is. Her husband left her while she was pregnant and had no intention of returning. She wanted to marry a rich man, but who she had in mind refused because he did not want to deal with someone else's children. As a result, she threw her children into the river after stabbing them. She went back to her lover, but he was horrified by the blood-streaked dress she had on and immediately rejected her for good. She ran back to the river trying to find her children, but it was too late, of course. It is said that she wails and walks along the banks of the river, wearing a horse head as punishment. When I finished the story, both of them stayed silent. I guess they didn't know what to think of this. A few days later, we were exploring near the Rio Grande ourselves. I was looking out over the river, watching for fish. Rich was following it to see where it led, and Isaiah was picking up flat stones to skip along the water. I was laying down stones so we could find our way back, as dusk was setting in. As the last few rays of sun started to sink, I heard a splash. I turned around and said, Isaiah, you're supposed to skip the stones, not throw them. Even though he has dark skin, I noticed it was a bit lighter than usual. He said, that wasn't me. I rolled my eyes. Night fell upon us soon, and I saw a weird shape moving around us. I tapped Rich and Isaiah's shoulders and pointed at it. They looked and immediately froze. I'm smaller and shorter than both of them. I was afraid of what they were seeing, as I couldn't get a very good look. Rich made a sound like when you try to say something but can't get it out. Isaiah's eyes were bulging. One of them whispered, La Llorona. Rich shook his head, then the thing turned and we shot off like the devil was after us. As we ran, Rich said, That's not real. She was wearing a horse head. We didn't stop, even when we heard the screech of what sounded like a woman being strangled. We floored it out of there and didn't go back. I haven't been back to Texas at all since then. And to be honest, I never really believed in La Llorona. I'd always seen it as a boogeyman story for Texas kids to make them behave. Even now, five years later, I have nightmares where I see a woman with a horse head. Rich said it had to be her, but Isaiah doesn't know what to think. I do know one thing, however. I don't want to go there again, because there's something far more evil and sinister to La Llorona, compared to all the other legends you hear of. I hope you enjoyed this Darkness Prevails episode, and if you did, be sure to like, share, comment, and subscribe. If you want to support the show, 
check the links below. There's a link where you can donate to my Patreon, buy some merch from my store, submit your own stories for narration, or even start investing with acorns, which helps me out a little bit too. Now as usual, here are my five favorite early comments from the previous full episode, titled, I worked in animal rescue. This was my most horrifying experience. Five true supernatural horror stories. Brandon Williams asks, How's it going, good sir? Glad you uploaded. Oh, I'm just tired. I haven't been sleeping well lately, and my voice is starting to crack, I think. Renee Hernandez says, Full stop. Working at an animal rescue would be equal parts horrible and rewarding. I'm going to assume some bad stuff happens and pass on this one. I still give you a like because I know you do quality work. Because of consistent complaints like yours, I've been giving out trigger warnings where appropriate when I can remember. And I didn't give a trigger warning for this one because there was nothing bad in it. But people will keep assuming that something bad happens and miss out on things they don't have to miss out on. But to each their own. I completely understand and respect your decision to skip the episode. But if you hear this, there's nothing to worry about, and I hope you go back and enjoy it. And for those who are listening, I will continue to try to do some trigger warnings when I can remember. It wasn't always my policy, and I've been trying to avoid stories for you guys that have that kind of violence in it. Anyway, again, sorry for the misunderstanding. Tiger Fuzz 4 says, I'm an ultimate dog mom. I die for my fur babies. I must be a dog mom too, because I would also die for my fur babies. Random Vlogger says, I love your channel and watch every video. Can you say... Ugh, oh god. I'll say it. Ooh, woo. And Gerard Barriento says, I really was going to volunteer at our local animal rescue, but now I'm thinking twice after these stories. Hey, go ahead and do it. Those animals always need some love and rescue. If anything, these stories should inspire you. Well, that brings us to the end of this Darkness Prevails episode. But don't you worry, because more scary stories are on the way soon. So stay tuned. Until next time, here are the credits to my amazing patrons who continue to donate. They're great people. Remember, stay safe out there, and stay creepy. Because this world is a strange one. As I type this, I can feel it burning into my scalp. I want so badly to pull the headset off, but I know exactly what will happen, and I don't think I can survive that again. When I first caught wind of the Oculus Rift back when it was still just a Kickstarter campaign, my mind was blown. I had always dreamed as a kid of being able to step into my favorite video games, I daydreamed about saving the world, swinging the Master Sword with my own hands as Link. I visualized myself as a bored god, making sure my sims' needs were met, or even making their lives hell. The idea of being inside the world of a game, it sounded so far off, impossible. Yet, under two decades later, we were on the cusp of actual tangible VR. Sure, some people doubted it, called it fake VR, 
compared it to the failure of Nintendo's Virtual Boy headset. Some folks wouldn't even be happy until we had Sword Art Online levels of virtual reality. But I was satisfied simply with sight, sound, and the ability to move my arms and interact with the world more joyful than my own. Years later, VR has come a long way. We now have developers working on pixel-perfect limb movement, leg trackers, 360-degree treadmills. People are doing everything they can to make the VR experience even more real. But they have no idea that it's all pointless. Once you go too far down the rabbit hole, you get stuck in a cycle of hell. It all started when I attended a small VR expo in Chicago. With the promise of new, yet-to-be-released prototype headsets available to demo, I was guaranteed to attend. I was a VR nut now, so there was no missing something like this. The expo was thrilling. There was a new headset from a lesser-known Chinese phone company that had an insanely high resolution. The demo game looked nearly real, but you'd need a $3,000 gaming PC to run it at speeds that wouldn't make you nauseous. Even the desktop that they had hooked up to the headset was struggling to meet 60 frames per second, and even that, for VR, can make you sick. Then my personal favorite was the headset that focused on field of view. They had managed to stretch the field of view to 180 degrees, which exceeds humans' horizontal field of view and meets our vertical field of view. The more you know. When I tried this one, I could see how people could nearly forget they're even wearing a headset. It felt like putting on a different pair of eyes. Sadly, the resolution suffered, and the screen door effect was so bad, you never felt immersed. I spent several hours making multiple rounds at the event, trying a multitude of spectacular devices. As the event was coming to a close, with twenty minutes left until the building closed its doors, I spotted a modest booth that I hadn't seen previously. Strange, I thought. By then, I'd made at least a dozen laps around the entire place, yet I hadn't seen this booth before. It consisted of a single black curtain with a plain black banner boasting white Times New Roman lettering that read, Conscious VR. I smirked. These VR titles were only getting more predictable. There was a man sitting there behind a cheap folding table, and in front of him was the boxiest-looking headset I'd ever seen. Its goggles ended in jagged edges. The strap was loose and seemed to be made of a cheap material. It was beyond generic, reverting past basic. The man himself reflected the dismal headset. He was adorned with a plain white tee, a tired expression, and eyes that had glazed over hours ago. He looked bored. I walked over. Twenty minutes was plenty of time to experience one more prototype. Conscious VR, huh? I said with a curious inflection. Mm-hmm. The man didn't even open his mouth. So, what's the gimmick? I pointed to the hefty headset. It's pretty big, so uh, does it have a crazy field of view? Super 8K resolution? Or is it an all-in-one or something? I knelt down and got a closer look. 
I didn't want to handle the thing until I got some sort of reaction from the guy. None of that, he muttered. Well then, what is it? I insisted. He paused for a moment, staring at me, then to the headset. Without looking back at me, he simply said, Wakes you up. I sneered. What's that supposed to mean? Like a cup of coffee? I mean, I could certainly believe that a VR game or device could be designed to get your blood pumping, so I wasn't too skeptical. Well, how tired are you? He asked, emotion still vacant in his words. I was getting impatient. Reaching my hands out to the headset, I looked toward the man. He nodded, granting me silent, though unenthusiastic, permission. The thing was heavier than it looked. It must have weighed twelve pounds at least. Immediately, I rolled my eyes. Whoever developed this wasted their time. Something this heavy would never be consumer or even commercially friendly. I grabbed the strap and stretched it over the back of my head. Then I laid the goggles on my forehead, struggling to find a means to adjust the tightness of it around my head before I blinded myself with it. But I couldn't find anything. No way to tighten the straps and no knob to adjust the forward position of the goggles. Nothing. You'll need to hold it, I heard the man say, seemingly seconds away from a deep yawn. Seriously? A headset you have to hold on to? There goes any hope of innovative or even enjoyable gameplay you could get out of it. With a sigh, I did as he instructed me. I held it at a position as comfortable as the awkward device would allow. The screen was black. Is it on? I asked. There was no reply. This guy was starting to piss me off. Is there a button I need to press? Still silence. Forget it. I wasn't going to stand there and be made a fool of by someone who should have been there to sell me on their idea. I yanked off the headset. I immediately fell backward onto the ground, breathless. Everything was black. In every direction, up, down, left, right, it was all blackness. A perfect dark that did not sway or falter. A black this flawless was unnatural, unnerving. I began to panic. I could feel my breathing speeding up and becoming more shallow. It was a struggle to pick myself back up and remain on two legs, as I could not see anything to balance myself with, no frame of reference. And when I was standing again, I attempted to look at my hands. There was nothing. I screamed, but the blackness seemed to swallow the sound, if there ever was a sound. I couldn't be sure. Was I blind? Was I deaf? Was I... dead? Even though I could have sworn I already did, I kept reaching up to pull off the headset. But I felt nothing but my hair and skin. At least I was still there, I guess. Then the electricity came. A deep, sharp, stinging pain that ran through me from top to bottom like a bolt of lightning. This pain was so intense that all other thought left my mind, and though I could not see it, I felt the dribble of saliva flooding out of my mouth like some tased criminal suspect. 
When I woke up, my entire body was asleep, a thousand needles per square inch of flesh. My vision had returned, and the headset was gone. I lay there in the floor of the event building alone. I sat up awkwardly, the needles slowly fading. My head was a mess of agony and confusion. The building was empty now. Had everyone left me there while packing up and leaving? Why would they do that? Had I passed out and no one cared? I picked myself up and carried myself to the glass front doors. For some reason, they weren't locked, and I was able to leave without a problem. Groggily, I made my way back to my hotel room. I had a plane to catch in the morning, and I had no way of knowing what time it was because the numbers on my phone were too blurry to read. How I made it back to my hotel bed alive or at all was a surprise. I lay there, eyes closed, enjoying the comfort of thread counts higher than I had at home. I felt fine then, save for the remnants of a headache. I looked over to the digital clock on the nightstand. 2.17 a.m. The journey back to the hotel certainly didn't take more than half an hour, so I must have been unconscious for a while. Even so, I was extremely tired. I found it difficult to keep my eyelids open, and raising my arms was a skirmish against my own body. So, with some effort, I adjusted my pillow and shut my eyes. But sleep did not come. Something was keeping me up. At first, I thought it was the headache, but it soon became clear to me that the headache wasn't actually a headache. There was an ache above my ears, wrapping around the entirety of my scalp like a circle. I could feel something there, something that hurt the longer it remained on me. For a moment, I assumed that the heavy headset had left a sore spot around my entire head. Naturally, I reached up to feel the source of my discomfort. My eyes flew open and taut. They began to water quickly swelling to a point where tears flowed down my face. What my fingers came into contact with was not a sore on my flesh, but cloth webbing. It was the same kind of material that that headset had been made of. I shot up and began to scour my own face with my hands, feeling immediately a bulky apparatus in front of my own eyes, in front of my own vision, and somehow... I could not see it. Choking on my saliva, I yanked at the strap and clasped at the thing in front of my eyes, raising it above my head. In a sudden transition, the world around me changed. The hotel room disappeared as the apparatus came off of me. Around me instead was my own bedroom, my wife sleeping soundly at my side. Though I recalled her having blonde hair, not auburn, the morning sun burned my retinas through the glass pane, though I recalled the window being at the opposite side of the room. Shivering, I looked down at my hands. Lying within their grasp sat a jet-black device. It wasn't the same as the conscious VR headset that I had expected. This was more sleek, quite a bit lighter, and with a more professional design sense applied to it. My eyes strained to open wider, ready to come apart at the seams. Honey, did you really wear that to bed? I turned sharply, 
My wife stretched herself awake and had greeted me with a reference to this device that I thought I'd never seen before until now. What? No, I... Speaking was difficult. My throat was dry and trembled even more than my exterior. You always wake up acting weird when you go to bed with that thing. I told you to stop doing that. It can't be good for your brain. She climbed out of bed with a yawn and made her way to the bathroom. Yet, I recalled the bathroom entrance being in the hallway. I took the moment to re-examine the headset. It looked typical. A strap, some adjustment knobs, some sort of softer-than-foam material applied to the inside of the goggles. If anything, it just seemed like a better quality version of the VR headsets that I remembered. But then I turned it about to see the lenses. There weren't any lenses. Rather, there in the middle of the top of the goggles set a metal connector, a dongle of some kind, similar in shape to a USB Type-C. My mouth was agape. I reached out, touching the connector. There was some sort of brownish-red residue on the side of it. Is that blood? Instinctively, my hand flew up to my forehead where the goggles would have met my face. A chill ran down my spine. My fingers met a hole, a small hole, that perfectly matched the shape of the dongle. I must have sat there, thoughtless and silent for a moment. Because the next thing I knew, my wife stood nervously at the bathroom door in a robe. Henry? Henry, is it happening again? Eyes watering, my gaze slowly met hers. I failed to blink, and I swear for a brief moment, I forgot how to breathe. In a sort of shell shock, I watched my wife pick up her phone and dial an ambulance. I was taken to the hospital. An exasperated doctor looked over my eyes and forehead thoroughly with a minuscule flashlight. Henry, you were in here just last week. I told you to take a break from that headset. My mouth didn't budge. I had nothing to say. Mm, yes, okay. You see, your excessive use is now causing a blood leak. While not usually fatal, it can cause disorientation and even seizures. I stared down at my hands. For some reason, all I could do was listen and count my fingers. One, two, three, four... I want you to stay here tonight while we monitor your brain activity. Five, six, seven. Are you listening, Henry? We'll keep an eye on you. But when you leave, in the next couple of days, promise me you take a break from that thing. And by God, don't go back to bed with it. Eight, nine, ten. The doctor spoke to my wife just outside the room. A nurse came in to apply some monitors to my heart and temples. She let me know that if I felt a seizure coming on, if I just didn't feel right, I simply needed to press this red button next to the bed. My wife came in then, kissed me, cried a bit, told me to get better. Then she left. That night... 
the hospital was quiet. But I lay awake, trying to figure this out. Was this reality? Had I come back to the real world from some sort of hyper-realistic escapism? And if this was the real world, why didn't I remember it? Sure, for the most part, my wife was the same. Our house was the same. The decorations were the same. The only big difference was the headset. I never remembered a headset like this existing. I didn't recall having surgery to implant an insertion point in my skull. This, this world was like the one I remembered, but only slightly different. My mind raced. I was beginning to wear myself down. Maybe I was overreacting to this. After all, if everything was essentially the same besides the technology of some weird headset, maybe I was worrying about nothing. I would just go home, live my life as usual, and stop worrying my wife by using that damned headset so much. Ah, I winced. My temples throbbed. It felt like they were sending some sort of current through these monitors. I reached up to fill them, and my heart seemed to stop. Webbing. A strap. Another headset that I could not see. Tremors flooded me as I lowered my hands. This time, I was too terrified to immediately rip off the apparatus. I was not prepared for another transition, another revelation showing me that not even this was real. I was still in yet another virtual world. I swallowed hard, but nothing went down. My throat was drier than ever. I didn't want to do it, but I knew I had to. If I didn't reach up and pull off this headset, I would only live on not knowing, living a lie. Steadily, one inch at a time, my hands moved in unison up to the straps that I was now fully aware of. These were thinner, yet somehow sturdier than the last. It came off more easily. I kept my eyes shut tight and only opened them slowly once the headset was off entirely. It took a moment for my eyes to adjust to the brightness of the room I was in. Once I came to, I could make out a large auditorium full of hundreds of people. Laughter, excitement, just plain positivity. If I had to guess, it was an expo, but a much larger one than the one I attended with the conscious VR booth. I quickly located a large banner toward the back of the hall that read, Welcome. Step into another world, 2019. What you think? An ecstatic voice nearly shouted in front of me. Huh? I managed to say. I looked ahead of me. I was holding the headset, which consisted of a thin white strap and a small rectangular box. A far cry from the goggle shape I was used to. The cubic is great, huh? It's the smallest extraneous world device on the market. The guy was short but built. He obviously took care of himself and was very excited about this product. Well, it's not on the market yet, but obviously we're going to make some waves, right? Extraneous world? Is that what they called VR here? 
Once again, my breathing became troublesome and stressed. This world already seemed far more different compared to the last shift. People wore hairstyles that seemed out of place to me. Several other people walked around with IVs coming from stylized backpacks and implemented into their wrists. Like this world's version of vaping. A woman walked in with a species of animal that I did not recognize. Without a word, I handed the device back to him and walked away. I exited the event, searched for my wallet, and thankfully found a keycard with my information to a hotel room. When I made it back to my room, I sat down at a rolling chair in front of a tiny wooden desk where a laptop lay. I opened it. I quickly scanned over the icons. Google Chrome, Microsoft Edge, a classic RuneScape launcher. It was exactly the same as my original laptop. The brands were the same, the icon positions were the same, even the classic RuneScape played identically to what I remembered. My head collapsed into my hands as I sobbed. I wanted to scream, yet I sat convulsing in tears. Because it didn't matter that the differences still weren't major. Because it didn't matter that I could probably pick up the phone and still hear from my very same loving wife. I cried because I had absolutely no idea what original actually meant anymore. I cried because, as my face sat in the palm of my hands, in a puddle of my own tears, I could feel yet another set of webbing around my head, another strap, another headset, another fake world. I haven't shifted worlds again. I'm still in the last one, noticing more and more differences than I had before. That new Nintendo console I'd purchased a month ago, it hasn't released yet here. The Pomeranian puppy I bought my kid for their birthday, it's a German Shepherd now. But worst of all, I noticed the first major difference within one of these shifts when I flew back home. My daughter, our five-year-old little girl who had begged me for a puppy and a bunk bed so that her friends would have a place to sleep during sleepovers. She wasn't our daughter anymore. She was now a 14-year-old he. I still feel the same love and adoration as I did, but the effects this has had on my psyche only grow even as I continue to ignore the ache of the strap around my head. It burns. It throbs. It stings every second of every day. I can feel the pain of it. I can feel it indenting itself into my flesh on the other side. Every sore sensation screams at me to pull the headset off. But I'm too afraid. I'm afraid because I know things will get different. My definition of real will only drift further away. I don't think I can handle it again, even though I know beyond this headset there will be another, and another, and yet another. And I'm afraid that, with each removed headset, I place myself closer to a more hellish reality. A reality closer to the truth. A reality where my dot I mean, son... It doesn't actually exist. 
a reality where I'm alone, bedridden, diseased, paralyzed, or worse. Growing up, my family was extremely poor. We lived in the south, in the middle of the countryside. It was land mostly owned by my mom's parents. They allowed my dad to do with the land as he pleased, which amounted to him hunting and farming on the land. This was basically a necessity. We were so poor that even though my dad had a full-time job, he'd have to come home and farm and hunt to feed us. He grew tomatoes, cucumbers, and zucchini, and other things, and would bring back deer meat and squirrel meat most of the time from his hunts. Even though I was a kid, I knew I couldn't be picky. My most notable memories of dinners we had included fried tomatoes and zucchini, as well as deer steak and squirrel dumplings. I loved it. Then again, I didn't try much else for a long time. It was just whatever we could grow and eat with an extremely rare outing into town. But food from town tasted weird to me. Anyway, when Dad did come home and did have free time, he was tired, exhausted. And with him and Mom always busy or just tired, they didn't really have time to supervise me. When I was four, they were beginning to realize that I needed to be able to play outside, but they couldn't supervise me constantly. Dad knew the troubles about that land. There were coyotes, bobcats, mountain lions, even bears. He'd seen them for himself. So they discussed a solution to this problem together. They ended up finding me and adopting me a puppy. The puppy was so playful and perky, with tons of energy and love to give. She had blue eyes, too. That was curious for me. I'd seen dogs before, and I'd never seen one with eyes like that. So blue, they were like the blue of a flame. Mom decided to name her Sapphire. She had to explain to me what a Sapphire even was first. We ended up calling her Safi most of the time. Safi and I grew up together. She grew into a big, pretty dog. We never did figure out her breed, though but I'll try to describe her looks. She looked like a mix between a German and Australian shepherd. Her ears were narrow and pointed, and her coat was light gray with splashes of black thrown in. Her snout was long and angular, and she was quite tall. My dad was six foot in his prime, and she came up to his waist on all fours. She was just as loyal and protective my parents had hoped she would be. She would join my dad on hunts sometimes. She got pretty darn good at running deer across his hunting trail. Plus, she scared the crap out of the local coyote population. My dad says for as long as she was full grown, he didn't see hide nor hair of coyotes or bobcats anymore. Plus, she was my best friend. Safi loved to play fetch. I had this old plastic frisbee that I got in some sort of goodie bag when I visited some church one Easter. We never went back, but it was worth it, because that lime green frisbee, that was Safi's favorite toy. Safi slept in the house at night. She may have been big and sturdy, but no member of the family was just going to be left outside every night. So she would usually sleep in a little pile of pillows in my bedroom, or she would sleep on this handmade chest my mom had. 
It sat under the living room window and gave Safi a good look outside when she wanted it. When I turned ten years old, something happened that changed my family forever. Late one night, Safi began to bark. Now, our Safi knew better than to wake up the whole house to a storm of barking in the middle of the night. This was something she hadn't done for years because we trained her out of it. She hadn't done something like that since she was a very small puppy. Mom and Dad somehow slept through this, but that may be because they're heavy sleepers and I woke up quickly to make her stop. You see, I didn't want poor Safi to get in trouble, so I went to investigate myself. I got her to calm down real quick. Her barking turned into low whimpers instead. She seemed desperate to get to something outside. She was staring out the window, glancing back at me every few seconds. It was as if she was trying to get me to see it too. I peered out the window and scanned left and right and up and down, but I didn't see a thing, nothing out of the ordinary and no movement. I was a ten-year-old child, though, and I had completely convinced myself that Safi and I should go outside and investigate this together. She'd always stuck by my side before. She didn't like to stray too far from you when you walked outside. I threw on a big warm jacket and my dad's boots that he left by the door. They were way too big for me. I then began to open the door, but as soon as there was enough room, Safi burst outside and ran off into the woods still whimpering instead of barking all the way, until I could not hear her anymore. I ran after her, calling her name over and over again. I couldn't catch up to her, and I soon realized that I had no idea what direction she could have gone in those woods. I searched all over the forest, following our trails, trying to find a trace of her until sunrise. By the time my parents were up, they found my bedroom without their son in it, so they opened the door to look for me. But there I was, crying on the porch. I let them know what happened, told them that I was the reason Safi had run away. Dad placed his hand on my shoulder, trying to comfort me as best he could. He told me we'd go look for her together in the truck, and we did just that. Dad called in sick first, even though honestly he couldn't afford a sick day like that. Mom stayed at the house in case she came back. Me and Dad drove around, driving real slow through the trails in those woods, calling out her name. We parked in several spots, walking through the woods and calling out for her, searching for Safi up and down and all over. After a long and unsuccessful day, we had to call it quits for the time being. But Dad was sure to remind me that Safi was a good girl. She was probably just lost, he said. He told me, them dogs got a knack for finding their way back home. And I believed him. I'd always seen my parents as people who were smarter than me. Sure enough, Dad was right. The following day, right before sundown, we saw Safi walking right out of those woods. Immediately, I was worried she was hurt. 
She wasn't panting like you'd expect a tired and hungry dog to be doing, but she was walking real slow and a bit awkward. She was walking like she saw us as strangers all of a sudden, but she knew that she had to approach us anyway. I was kind of cautious about getting up close to her at first. It was the strangest feeling. When I did get close, I couldn't help but hug her and pet her like crazy. Immediately, I noticed something else that was odd. Safi was perfectly clean. This dog had been lost in the woods for two days. She didn't look a bit dirty, let alone hungry or thirsty. My parents were happy to see her back at first, too. But even that wouldn't last long. Whatever came back from those woods, I don't think it was the same Safi. I used to feed Safi myself every morning. It was my chore, even though it never felt like one. We fed her this canned dog food that she was crazy about. Plus, we were never allowed to feed her table scraps. We wanted to keep her happy and healthy. But when we tried to feed her after her return, she would not take the food. She seemed insanely uninterested with it. She wouldn't drink out of her water bowl either. So we tried to force some food on her tongue to remind her of the taste and to stoke her appetite. But she ended up biting my dad. She even drew blood. My dad was definitely the most taken off guard about it. He wasn't mad, though. He apologized to the girl and pet her before going to bandage up his finger. It was decided then that she would eat when she was ready. Worst comes to worst, we'd have to find some money to take her to the vet if she got sick. A week passed by. We hadn't seen her eat or drink yet. In fact, her water bowl had not been refilled at all. There was the same amount of water in there as the first day she came back. She hadn't touched it. Despite this, Safi stayed the same shape, the same weight. Dad had convinced himself that something more ordinary was going on. He claimed that when she was lost in the woods, she discovered her joy of hunting. It is only natural for a dog. So now she enjoyed meals outdoors whenever she was outside. We didn't see her eat or drink because maybe she enjoyed finding that stuff for herself. But I didn't quite believe that. I went with it, but I didn't agree. I'd missed her so much and I'd blamed myself so deeply for nearly losing her. I just wanted things to be normal. But they only got worse. Safi stopped sleeping in my room when she came back. She would do her sleeping in the living room from there on, apparently. But one night, I woke up, and I found that Safi was on top of me. I was about to smile and pet her until I really saw what was going on. Safi was on top of me crouching, and her teeth were fully bared inches from my face. She wasn't growling or snarling, though. Nothing like that. What she was doing was sort of vibrating, rapidly shaking back and forth unnaturally. There was a sound coming from her mouth, too. Christ, just remembering that sound gives me chills. It was like an old woman who'd been smoking her whole life, screaming desperately for help, 
from the middle of some deep cave. It was all one long breath of a sound. No interruptions, no stops, just one long, awful, horrifying noise coming from that dog. I kid you not, this went on for about two minutes straight. Then my mom groggily opened the door to my bedroom the rest of the way, as it was a bit ajar. She wanted to know what that noise was. Instantly, Safi stopped making that noise. She stopped shaking, too, then jumped down off my bed and walked that slow, awkward walk back to the living room. I explained to my parents that I did not feel safe with Safi anymore, that she wasn't the same dog. When I admitted this, I knew that they agreed with me, but they didn't say it. I don't think they wanted to believe it. They didn't want to admit that the dog we'd raised and put so much love and time and money into was broken, was all wrong. From then on, I locked my bedroom door at night. I even began avoiding Safi throughout the day. Eventually, something happened that broke me right out of my denial. It was then that it became clear to me that this was not the same animal that I'd loved before. She didn't even like to play with her frisbee. I remember trying to throw that frisbee with her, and she wouldn't even look at it. She would just stare at me. That was really heartbreaking. Anyway, one day, Safi had been in and out of the house all day, doing God knows what, while Dad was out hunting once again. As for me, I was minding my own business. I was pretty bored, so I decided to go for a walk on the trails in the woods. But I didn't expect to run into Safi. I did. I saw her there in the woods, but she didn't see me for a while. She had somehow managed to get herself halfway up a tree. I didn't know dogs could climb trees like that. She was lying down with ease on a thin tree branch. I didn't call out to her. I mean, I used to be excited when I saw Safi, but nowadays when I saw her, I'd rather just turn and walk away. But then I saw her mouth. It was wide open, but completely motionless. Her mouth was covered in red. It appeared to be blood. And then I really saw the branches around her. They were covered in carcasses, dead birds, dead squirrels, a couple of dead snakes, too. Apparently, none of them had been eaten, either. They'd simply been killed and strewn about on the tree. It was like the tree was decorated with animal corpses. Seeing this, I was stunned and disturbed. And then I looked at Safi again. She still hadn't moved and she appeared to not be breathing at all. She was lying there, her head up, mouth still wide open. It was similar to how she was lying on my bed that night. But this time, her mouth was so open, so damn wide, it looked as if she was about to tear the skin and bones from her own face. She didn't budge at all, either. No sound was coming out of her. I couldn't look away from this. I watched her for several minutes, trying to control my breathing because I did not want her to hear me. I waited for her to move, 
waited for her to take a big breath or yawn or get her attention taken by something moving in the woods, but it never happened. For the entirety of those several disturbing minutes, she remained in this state. Then my mom called me from the house behind me in the distance. I turned only for a moment, awakened from my stupor. When I turned back towards Safi, she was no longer in the tree. I found her on the ground right in front of me, staring up at me. I was so badly startled that I fell backward onto the ground. She looked at me for a moment, then walked away in the opposite direction of the house. It was then that I realized that her eyes had changed too. They weren't that sapphire blue that we'd fallen in love with. I realized that they had been fading every day since she came back. They were now a sort of blue-gray. That was the last I ever saw Safi. Because after that, she never came back. Or should I say that the thing that looked like Safi never came back? This time with Safi being gone, my family didn't talk about it, didn't worry about it. We basically pretended that Safi had never come back the first time. I wasn't able to mourn for a long time either. I was too bewildered, scared, confused. Eventually, I would cry for my dog, for the real Safi that I knew way back then. But it took me years. Years of convincing myself that those couple of weeks that Safi had come back, they were just a dream, a nightmare of sorts. But it can't be. You see, I talked to my dad about this whole thing recently. It's been 18 years. I'm 28 now, and I visited my dad recently to go hunting with him, which we do often nowadays. I asked him, Dad, do you remember Safi a long time ago? Remember when she came back home from being lost in the woods? He looked down at the ground. We were sitting in the forest, moments away from heading back home after an unsuccessful hunt. He sort of fidgeted with the rocks on the ground a bit before answering me. Then he replied, Well, about that. There's something I've been meaning to tell you and your mom. I just don't know how to say it. I wanted to talk about it before, when you moved out. But I couldn't. You see, son, I would see Safi in the woods for the next couple of years from time to time. She'd be staring at me from the distance, never coming too close. And I would never call out to her. She kind of creeped me out, to be honest. But the thing is, around that same time, I found a couple of trees, all messed up in the same way. I interrupted for a moment. What do you mean, messed up? He explained. Well, a couple of times when I went hunting, I stumbled upon these trees. Trees covered with dead animals and such. Like someone had killed them and just tossed them there left them in one piece. You'd think they'd be eaten by something if they were left dead like that in the woods, but they weren't. They were just thrown on a bunch of tree branches, like some sort of bloody Christmas tree or something. My breath caught in my throat for a moment. 
My dad was sitting here telling me that he saw the exact same thing that I did. Telling me that this tree corpse thing had happened multiple times, and that that saffy thing was still out there. He went on. That's not even the only thing from that time. Once Safi got gone again, I started hearing weird noises on the hunts. I'm used to the animal calls out there, but this call I kept hearing was unlike anything I'd heard before. If I could compare it to something, it was like a metal cat yowling really loud from within a deep valley, all echoey and metallic and scratchy. After talking with my dad, I now know how real everything was. I can't just chalk it up to a dream now. It may have been a long time ago, but I know it all to be true. Whatever happened to my Safi, the real Sapphire, my best friend in the world, I just hope her last moments were peaceful and that she rests in peace now. I miss you, girl. Hello there, viewers both foreign and domestic. Every nation has its spirits, its ghouls, and its ghosts, but each place has its own spin on the paranormal. There are Native American spirits that take on various terrifying shapes and forms. There are the night marchers of ancient Hawaii who are as deadly as they've ever been. And then there are those pale-skinned, dark-haired ghosts in Japan that haunt our dreams as well as our TV screens. Tonight, I've got an especially fun and creepy story titled, I Worked Night Shift in Japan and I Saw Something Disturbing. This is a ghost story that might keep you up for the next several nights to come. Enjoy, and remember, share your stories with us at darkstories.org or reddit.com slash r slash darkness prevails if you want your story narrated. Also, I'll be back to doing my usual multiple story videos soon, so don't worry. Now, let's begin. I grew up in Fujinomiya, Japan. My mom was American and dad was Japanese. It's a really nice place to live and grow up in. We also get a lot of tourism thanks to Sengen Shrine and Mount Fuji. Now, on to my story. My first job was working night shift at a konbini, or convenience store. From there on, my sleep cycle was ruined. I worked night shift there for so long it became typical of me to work night shift jobs. I tried a couple of times to adjust to a normal day-night cycle, but it seemed impossible for me. But this story is about my experience working at that convenience store. Working nights at a konbini can be lonely. Most of my time was spent alone there. My manager didn't like to work nights, and he trusted me in the store alone. 
I figured it was a good idea to be on his good side and not complain about it. Maybe one day he would trust me to be a manager. As you would expect, working nights can be really slow. In fact, the average night was really slow. And when things are really slow, you end up finding things to do for yourself. I spent a lot of time daydreaming. I did have a bit of a fear of being robbed, and I often wondered how I would react if someone came in and tried to rob the place. I would hope that I would react calmly and just give them the money or whatever they wanted so they would leave. Obviously, my fears back then were realistic, right? I, I never even once wondered if the place was haunted or possessed. But these fears of being robbed never became more than daydreams, because it just never happened. The people that came through that place at night fit into one of three categories. There were the career folk coming home late that needed a quick snack or pick-me-up. There were the hikikamori, which I think most closely translates to shut-in, young people who despise other people or hate society. They try to stay inside all day. But I would see them come out at night when everyone else was in bed, coming in for some udon or ramen. And thirdly, there would be groups of teenagers, delinquents, that should probably be in bed at the time, but would rather make a bit too much noise in the store than leave without buying anything. Basically, none of these three groups fit the mold for criminals, so it wasn't real people that I had to worry about. After a time, I felt comfortable working the nights, until it started. One night, it was especially slow and quiet. It was winter, colder than usual. People were staying home enjoying a good night's rest or tea or video games, all of which sounded heavenly to me. A couple of hours had passed, and not a single customer had come in. After washing the same counter space three times over, then double-checking the shelves to make sure everything was stocked, I ran out of things to do, and I was very bored. I could not afford a cell phone at the time, so to pass the time, I started reading a shonen magazine. You can mock me all you want, but I was really into One Piece at the time. It's kind of crazy how that series is still going on after so long. Anyway, I was flipping through the pages for another fifteen minutes or so. Then the sliding door to the store opened. Instinctively, I looked up. I saw an extremely attractive woman. She had just walked in. She had straight, dark hair, pale skin, and light pink lips. She was maybe 160 centimeters tall. I think that's about five foot three. She seemed quite shy. When she entered the store, she kind of half-grinned in my direction with a quick glance. Then she walked to the back of the store, toward the beverages. Seeing such a cute girl, I got kind of nervous. I was 17 years old at the time, and I'd never had a girlfriend, let alone touched a girl. I tried to keep my cool and figured the best thing to do would be to distract myself until she came up to purchase something. So I picked the magazine back up and continued to read it. All the while, I couldn't actually take in what I was reading, as I knew she would be approaching the register soon. Then the sliding door opened again, 
I thought immediately, wow, two customers within a minute of each other after such a slow night. That was unusual, but maybe they knew each other. I looked up, and my eyes went wide. Entering the store was the same girl. She gave the same quick glance and the same half-smile in my direction. The only difference was a slight gray color under her eyes. She then also walked toward the back of the store as well, where I saw that the original girl was gone. I scanned the entire room, but no one else was there. I started to rub my eyes, thinking that maybe I just didn't see her walk out before. Maybe she had just come back in, for whatever reason. A few seconds later, one of the lights toward the back of the store began to go out. I went into the back room to grab a new fluorescent bulb, and when I came back to the front of the store, the light was just fine, but that second girl was gone. I lay the unopened box with the light against the counter away from my walking path. I'd probably need it later in the night if that light was going to go out. A few moments after that, the door opened again. I couldn't breathe when I looked, and there she was once more. The exact same girl, the exact same glance given to me, with the exact same half-smile. The bags around her eyes were darker now. Her lips appeared cracked and irritated. Even her hair appeared more greasy and unkept. She turned and began to walk to the back of the store again. I walked away from the register and passed the door. I was worried. Worried for my own sake and for hers. Something was wrong with this girl, and she might need some help. I began to stutter out and, excuse me, miss, when I realized the moment I spoke at all was a huge mistake. The girl stopped. Her back turned toward me. I stayed quiet. Then the lights in the room all went out at once, for a little under a second. When they came back on, the girl in front of me was completely gone. I was dumbfounded. This had took a turn into the uncanny, the not normal. But then the sliding door opened from behind me. I was terrified, too scared to turn and look to see who was there. I could hear someone breathing. The sliding door opened again, then closed, then opened, then closed, several more times just like that, before finally stopping. I could hear a dozen different sources of breathing behind me now, a dozen different people behind me breathing slowly, deeply, in a quiet store. I swallowed and gathered my courage. Then, when I was ready, I turned in an instant. Now facing the entrance, I saw that there was no one else there. I remained the only person in the store. That was the end of the strange things for that night. But something else did happen a few nights after. I was sweeping the floors that night. It was close to the time the morning guy would be coming in with the manager. 
It was still fully dark out, but I'd seen a few people walking past to get to their jobs. Usually a couple of people would walk in for some quick breakfast or an energy drink. But the store was empty once again, and I was finishing up my duty to sweep. I was backing up with my finished mound of debris, which consisted of grass and dust and such. I was bringing the pile to the front of the store carefully, as it would be much easier to pick up there. That's when I bumped into someone. Now, no one had come in for a while. I would have heard them walk in if they had, and I had been alone for the last 45 minutes for sure. It was weird, but I didn't realize it. Instead, I was on autopilot. I quickly turned to give a quick bow and to apologize to the person I bumped into. But when I turned around, I was met with the face of the girl from that night, and she was looking worse than ever. Her eyes were bloodshot, hair was a mess and no longer straight. There were cuts all over her cheeks going downward, and I noticed that her fingernails were broken and bloodied. It looked as if she had been scraping her own face with her nails. Her dried lips were now cracked and bleeding in places. I couldn't speak. She was looking down at the floor as I stood there motionless and horrified. I prayed that she didn't bring those eyes up to look at me. She didn't, but instead she whispered something. Then the lights flickered like before, and she was gone in an instant. If you don't know, sumimasen means excuse me, or pardon me. If I wasn't sure before that something wicked was going on with this place, I was sure then. Then things died down for an entire year. It was winter again, and I'd taken a job offer for a just-out-of-town factory that would pay me far more for my time. It would be a train ride away, sure, but I'd be in a far better situation. I'd given my notice to the manager, so I was on my last month of work at the convenience store. I was more nervous than excited. Honestly, I'm not the type of person that handles change well, and this was going to be quite a big change for me. It was the best move, I think. The store was seeing less and less business over the past year. We had some competitors rising up around the city, and staying afloat was more than difficult for us. That translated to less business for us overall. My boring nights became even more dull. Those experiences I'd had the year prior had become nothing more than a ghost story I shared with my family and a few close friends I had. They readily believed my story, too. The locals where I grew up often took a discussion of ghosts, legends, and myths quite seriously. My parents simply reminded me that if there is a ghost in the store, respect it, and don't let it be the reason I quit my job. Well, I was working one new moon night. It was so dark out you couldn't see outside the entryway door except for a spot from the distant lone street lamp. I was stocking bottles and jugs of tea from the back room, sliding those items into the coolers. 
When I was alone in the store and I had to work from the back room, I would usually do it quickly, so as to get back to the front to monitor the store in case someone walked in. But restocking the coolers meant I could slow down. You see, I had a good view of the store through the shelves, so I was just taking my time. As I approached the bottom rows of the coolers, I had to crouch down, and in that stance my legs grew tired quickly. So at one point, while grabbing another bottle and reaching into the cooler, I tried to situate myself into a more comfortable position. Just for a moment, I was looking away from the cooler, when suddenly, the bottle fell onto its side in the cooler, no longer in my hand, because my knuckles had collided with something inside, something colder than the cooler itself, moist and soft. The moment I looked up, my heart began to beat so hard, it felt like my ribcage was going to burst. I wanted to yank my hand away, but I was too scared of what would happen. Instead, I left my hand where it was, and I stared back, because what my fist had collided with was the back of someone's throat, someone with absolutely no body heat at all. And I did recognize that face, the face of the person whose mouth I had intruded into. It was the girl from last year, that phantom girl who had appeared and disappeared repeatedly and terrified me for so long. She was sprawled on the floor with her face shoved into the cooler from the other side, mouth unhinged in an inhuman way so that my hand could fit inside her mouth with ease. I could not move. I couldn't think. But I finally managed to react to this entity at long last. I screamed. I screamed so loud that even she was affected by it. She winced and crawled backward, fading out of existence rather than instantly, compared to before. Gaining control of my body again, I began to kick at the cooler, pulling myself backward until I hit the back wall of the store. There I lay, staring through the second-to-last half-empty shelf in the cooler, waiting for something to move on the other side, waiting to see that demon of a girl crawling across the floor between the aisles in the front of the store. Truthfully, I stayed like that for about an hour, Thankfully, no customers entered the store during that period, while I was trying my best to regain my sanity. When I finally felt sane enough to lift myself from the floor and walk back to the front of the store, I did so shaking from head to toe. I peered around the corner first, checking everything within view. No one. It was clear. Then I ran for the phone on the counter and swallowed deep. I dialed my manager's number, who would be coming to work in a few hours, so I was sure he'd be angry and half asleep. After he answered, and I apologized repeatedly about a dozen times, I made my request. I could not wait another two hours for the morning crew to arrive, so I asked that someone relieve me immediately. I wasn't really able to say more than I was scared for my own safety, 
which was just enough to get him to cooperate. In about ten minutes, an extra tired crew member took my place. I bowed and apologized, then left for home as quickly as I could. The walk home was dark and terrifying. I found myself checking every street that I walked past. When I actually did see the silhouette of another person, I nearly yelped as my mind was inserting the face of that girl on them. But I quickly realized I was just crazy, just scared. When I made it home, I spent the remainder of the morning with my parents, before they had to leave for work. They found my sudden need to be around them a bit irritating, but I was so scared of being alone at the time that I couldn't help it. When they left me alone, I kept every light in our apartment on. I washed my hands, then took a long, hot bath. After all that, I still felt violated, dirty, fearing for my own life. But nothing else happened. The next month passed by slowly, and I transitioned into my new job, now excited rather than nervous. To this day, I never did find out who that girl was, let alone what she was. I never asked if a girl had died at that store. I was aware of the superstitious beliefs of the people around me, but before this, I never took it to heart. Never once did I think that I had experienced something like this myself. But I have a whole new fear for the paranormal. And to think after that second experience, where I heard her say, excuse me, I thought she was a nice spirit. But after nearly having my arm devoured by her, I don't think her intentions were quite kind. Police, paramedics, firefighters, these are skilled people who are trained to arrive on the scene, ready for anything. They are first responders. Accidents, violence, catastrophe, they'll be there to keep you safe, and oftentimes to save your life at the very last second. But responding to our most disturbing and terrifying moments means that first responders have seen some of the most horrific things. Enjoy these first responder horror stories, and if you have your own scary story to tell, share it with us at darkstories.org or reddit.com slash r slash darkness prevails to have it narrated here. I'd love to hear stories about the creepiest stuff you've seen on your home security cameras. Now, let's begin. How My Ambulance Call Turned Into a Missing Person Case From Anonymous I work as a paramedic, and I've only been doing so for a couple of years. This particular call came about six months into my job. I work in a small town, which means loads of country, 
Rolling hills, lots of thick forest, all that jazz. It's pretty common for us to have to be called out to some rural property. Let's just say livestock and hunting accidents were some of the calls I'd already been on, just in that six-month period. Now, one of our more common calls was caused by this dangerous bend in a country road. The paramedic crew I work with referred to it as Devil's Bend. At least a handful of people would die on that bend every year. Some of them, of course, would be driving way too fast, trying to take that bend at high speeds. They would end up rolling over and perishing in a crash. But even if you were going the speed limit, you could very well end up hurting yourself as well. Every time I had talked to a cop about that bend, I let them know that it would be a good idea to talk to someone in charge about changing the speed limit there. Whether or not people listen to it, that's beyond us. Well, one night we're dispatched to that very bend. Someone had called 911, stating that they were badly hurt and that they had been in a rollover accident. Now, from what I heard, this person had called from within their car, but quickly passed out during the call, which was not a good sign. Me and my coworker got ready and headed over to the bend as quickly as I could, sirens blaring. If we didn't get there fast enough, this woman could be dead or in a coma. After a rough drive through these dark, winding country roads in the middle of the night, we make it to the bend, finding an upside-down tan-colored sedan in the ditch. We get out with our equipment, praying that we didn't have to call the fire department to get some jaws of life out here, which our emergency crew did not carry. Anything that prolonged this rescue would make things worse, obviously. I immediately noticed that the side windows on the vehicle had been blown out from the pressure of the crash. Avoiding the glass on the ground and in the grass, I carefully crouched down. Then, using a pocket flashlight, I look inside the vehicle. But the woman isn't there. Fantastic, I thought. This could mean several things. There was a chance the lady had been tossed from her car and only thought she was still in it due to her head injury which, because she passed out during the call, was pretty likely. Or she may have crawled out of the car. Either way, she wasn't there. I let my partner know, so we began to scour the woods and ditch around us in opposite directions to cover more ground. The two of us were both calling out our versions of, 911, we're here to help. But for a while, we didn't get a response. The ditches were clear, and there didn't seem to be any signs of crawling or walking. No blood either, so that was good. There wasn't even blood in the car or on the windows, like I would have expected. Then again, she could have been bleeding internally. But I kept my mind focused on just finding her in the first place. I headed back toward the car and began to search the woods on my side from there. I called out again. 911! We're here to help! As I began to walk deeper into the woods, I finally got a response. It was a woman's voice. I'm here. Please help. I broke into a steady jog in the direction I heard the voice. I'm coming towards you. As I'm moving through the woods, having expected to already find the woman, the voice came again from an entirely different direction, now way off to my right instead of straight ahead of me. The voice had come from much nearer than that before. Maybe she was moving around. Maybe she was disoriented. 
and tried to find me too, but ended up getting a bit more lost. Please stay where you are. I'll come to you. As I began debating whether or not to ask her to call out again, I was still pretty new on the job, and I was afraid that making her speak again could damage her throat or something. But she called out again anyway. I'm here. Please help. Now, instead of speeding up once more and heading in that direction, I stopped first. I felt my eyebrow raise on its own, as I realized her voice had the same tone and inflection to it as before. It wasn't like she had spoken again, it was more like she had replayed what she had said. I figured maybe it was just the adrenaline, so I kept going toward the voice after a moment. As I got closer to it, my footsteps through the forest were drowned out by a loud sound coming from ahead of me. It was a heavy, dragging sound. It was quite moist and rough. Oh, God, I thought. I'm about to stumble upon this poor woman, dragging herself through the dirt to find me, bleeding out or something. I prepared myself to witness something disturbing. But as I continued on, I still did not find the woman. I continued going in the direction I'd last heard her, the direction of the dragging sound, too, but I was going slower now. If I wasn't careful, I would get lost in the woods, and that would just make matters worse for everyone involved. I walk in a little further, and I finally spot something on the ground. I swallow hard, and I point my flashlight. There's a female, seems to be in her thirties, with blonde hair that's covered in twigs, leaves, and dirt. She's on her back, and she seems to be unconscious, but she's breathing. She's lying on the ground maybe twenty yards ahead of me. I can see her through the brush and trees. I break into a sprint, about to call out to my partner to come this way, because I found her. When I suddenly stop, I'm here. Please help. The same call for help comes once again. Nothing different about it, save for a bit of a deeper voice coming from behind it, if that makes sense. It's a sound that scares me so bad that I'm too terrified to continue forward. I'm just staring at this poor woman unconscious on the ground. I could reach her. I could save her like I'm supposed to. But I'm horrified. Just as I stood there, a coward, watching this woman in need, something yanks her away deeper into the forest, dragging her until I could not hear the dragging sounds anymore. With that, she was gone, and I was too scared to do anything about it. I back up instead of giving chase, chills running over my skin on every part of my body. I couldn't make sense of what was going on, and the most primal part of me was begging me to go back to the ambulance. I listened. I didn't have the strength to do anything else. Call me what you will, but you don't know how scared I was. The voices stopped too. She doesn't call out again. That look of her being dragged away with her eyes closed on the ground was the last instance I had of that woman. Back at the ambulance, 
I quickly called up the police to tell them what happened. Told them everything that happened, everything that I saw 100% honest. My partner heads back to the ambulance too, says he didn't find her, but he does find me with a wide-eyed expression. Soon the police arrive on the scene. They take my statement again in person now. After recording it, one of the officers states that to him it sounds like an animal attack, says that if a coyote or a bear is hungry enough, and they stumble upon a half-dead person, they wouldn't let the opportunity go to waste. While that's horrid, I wished it was as simple as that, because at least then there'd be a chance of finding her, maybe in time before she's devoured. But that does not explain away the voices. The voices that were both not coming from her, but were her voice at the same time. To this very day, that woman remains a missing person, and I still have vivid memory of hearing that last voice, that last call for help, as I watched the woman on the ground, but the voice was coming from yards away. The Burning Cabin From Terry I work for my local fire department as a volunteer. When there's a call and they need another crew member, I'm always ready to lend a hand. And every other weekend, I sleep at the fire department, lending my free time as on-call hours in case anything goes down. But the town we lived in was pretty quiet and peaceful. Not too big, but not really small either. We didn't get a lot of fires. Most of the stuff I reported to was first responder stuff. Injuries caused in accidents on the road. An elderly man who got frozen inside his car one night. I don't honestly remember how he let that happen. But we had to tear the darn door off to get him out. And false alarms from one of the local schools because kids can be kind of disrespectful. One evening just after sundown... We get a call about people reporting a bunch of smoke towering above an old cabin. My first guess was that someone left the fireplace going and the place caught fire. A fireplace left on too long in an old wooden cabin is just begging for trouble. So we threw on our gear and piled into the fire truck, finally answering a call that had something to do with a fire. As we were about a couple of miles away... We eventually caught sight of the stacks of smoke ourselves, rising above the trees. These were dark, gray smoke plumes, rising up a couple hundred feet into the sky. It looked pretty bad. I was expecting once we pulled up near the driveway, the place would be nothing more than ash. When we arrive at the cabin, though, turning past the thick trees and finally getting a view of the cabin itself, there's no smoke at all. And there's no fire. We didn't get out at first, as the cabin itself was entirely abandoned and in one piece. There was no trace of heat or burns or anything. We got out and carefully inspected the building from the outside from a safe distance. I even checked the sky again, trying to locate the massive amounts of smoke that we had somehow now lost. But there was no smoke in the sky at all anymore. And this cabin was perfectly normal. I remember looking at the chief and just shrugging. What are we going to do, I thought. He had one of the guys climb on top of the engine. 
getting as good a view as he could, trying to find any trace of smoke in the purple sky. But he climbed back down and gave us uh, no smoke as far as the eye could see. We packed it in, deciding that before we headed back, we would drive around the area, making sure we didn't miss the proper location. We even called dispatch again, trying to make sure that we were given the right information. We were. Turns out we did go to the right place. We were beginning to drive back to headquarters, thinking it may have been low-hanging clouds. Maybe someone was burning a fire in the nearby woods. But before we could make it very far at all, one of the guys tells us to stop. He points out the window, and lo and behold, there's a massive tower of smoke coming from somewhere in the direction of the cabin. I thought to myself, this doesn't make any sense. We do a U-turn and head back to the cabin. We watch that smoke carefully, making sure we were following it to the T. Sure enough, it led us right back to that dang cabin, and the moment we turned around that bend of trees, the smoke was gone, and we were met once again with that quiet cabin. Everything was as it should be. I scoured the skies myself and did not find a trace of smoke. That's when the chief sends Craig to the door of the house. Maybe we could get some information on what might be going on from the people who live there, or might be staying there at the time. But this was really just grasping for straws. There wasn't a car in the driveway, and more than likely no one was here. Well, when Craig goes up to the door and knocks once... He falls right on his back, collapsing. We run up to him, making sure that he's okay. He seemed to have just passed out. Maybe he got too hot in his gear, which can happen, but it doesn't happen very often, and Craig is quite an experienced firefighter. He's used to the heat of the gear and the weight of it. We drag him onto the grass away from the cabin door, and then he wakes up. He's disoriented and coughing a lung up, once he clears his throat, he asks what's going on. We let him know that for a couple of seconds there he had just passed out on us. He says that all he remembers was opening the door to the cabin and seeing a sea of flames and black smoke filling his lungs. But we told him no. All he did was knock and fall over. He gets up again, coughing up yet another lung in the grass. He sounded like he just came out of a burning building. Once we make sure Craig is fine, we leave again. We're updating the police on what's going on, and I look back. The smoke is there again, rising above and leading directly to the cabin. This time we don't go back. We just report it to the cops, let them know that something wasn't right, and we weren't sure what to do about it. The cops get reports from us and from neighbors of the cabin, but to this day, nobody knows what was going on. It truly was bizarre, and it's definitely the weirdest experience I've had working as a firefighter. Strange Animal Attack From Midnight Caven I used to work as a police officer. The county I worked for was a rural one. Lots of old, worn-down homes surrounded by trees and dirt roads. That kind of thing. 
We got a lot of calls about break-ins and domestic disputes, even the occasional drive-by. The county had a bit of a drug problem. It got pretty rough, so much so that my mom tried to convince me every time I saw her to quit that job, as, how did she say it, me working as a cop was going to be the death of me and her. This is about my craziest experience working as a cop, and honestly, it did change how I believe things. It was about 7 p.m., after dark for sure. I was in the rundown parking lot of an old grocery store. We were in the cruiser, my partner and I, when we got a call from dispatch that we needed to head over to this trailer, way, way out in the boonies, basically deep in the countryside. We take the call and drive about 15 minutes into the woods. We finally arrive at the place. The double-wide trailer was in pretty good condition, and looked like whoever lived there had built their own deck on the front. The land was well-kept, and there was a nice little garden out back, with a single light coming from a telephone pole toward the front by the street. Actually, it was more of a dirt road. If I didn't already have a wife and a mortgage to pay for, this place seemed like a pretty nice place to live. Then again, it was a bit too far out of the way for my tastes. I mean, it took us 15 minutes to get here. Who wants to wait 15 minutes after calling the cops? Despite our headlights shining in through the windows on the trailer, no one even attempts to come outside to greet us, and since the call was about some sort of home invasion or possibly even an animal attack, when we got out of the car I had my holster unstrapped, and I was ready to grab the gun. My partner and I steadily approached the door. We knocked, and after a few moments a middle-aged man without a shirt greets us, with a little girl, probably his daughter, maybe even granddaughter, holding close to his hip, sucking on one of her fingers. She seemed pretty frightened. Before introductions, he hurriedly invited us inside, and as we entered, he kept looking left and right outside before closing the door. I noticed that his wife was leaning against the kitchen counter to our right. She seemed to be wiping tears from her face with what appeared to be a moist rag. The man invited us over to the couch while he sat in a recliner, and the little girl sat next to him in the floor. He leaned forward, and he began to tell us what was going on. I take some notes on a notepad. The man says they were watching TV just after having supper, when something huge hits the side of the trailer really hard, causing the structure to start swaying back and forth for a moment. The three of them got real quiet, then whatever it was out there hits the opposite side of the trailer. This is when the man goes to get his rifle from the wall, which he then let us know was placed in the hanging gun case still on the wall, because he didn't want to have it out when the cops arrived. Anyway, the man cautiously goes outside to investigate, and he swears he sees the tallest man he'd ever seen, big and burly, describes them about three times as wide as any man. The guy was leaning against the trailer, like he was trying to listen from outside. The man did not see the owner of the trailer outside with his rifle, and as the owner still wasn't sure if it was a man or something else, he fired off a warning shot into a mound of dirt toward the side of his property. This person turns immediately, 
facing the owner. The guy then admits that in that moment he realized he wasn't facing a person. This big and burly creature runs towards him, admitting that firing off his only loaded round at the moment into a pile of dirt was a mistake, as he desperately tries to back up and chamber another round. This big beast runs into him, practically throwing him into the dirt, before the thing kept running and disappeared into the woods. Knocked the wind right out of me, the guy said. I wasn't really believing his story. I ask him if he's been on any substances as of late, which he quickly fires back with a no, and that's a rude question to ask in front of his daughter. I apologize, and then I let them know that the most we could do at the moment was walk around the property right quick, and we could stay in the patrol car for a couple of hours just to keep an eye out. The delighted man says thank you, and that his family would feel much safer that night if we did. My partner and I exit the home. With our flashlights out, we circle the perimeter of the property real quick, meeting in the middle on the other side, before heading back to the patrol car. I didn't see any weird footprints or traces of someone trying to break in the home or attacking the home. No tufts of hair or claw marks or anything like that to indicate an animal attack either. So we sit back down in our patrol car, and we're ready to stay there for another couple of hours, unless, of course, we get called away again. During this time, my partner and I are discussing what we thought about the whole thing. I say I don't believe a word of it. The guy was probably drinking, if not on something else. At the very most, it could have been a bear that came up on their trailer, probably smelled their dinner and was desperate to get some for himself. My partner, on the other hand, said that he was giving them the benefit of the doubt. He'd heard some crazy stuff could go down in the woods, especially this far out. After all, it could have been a big dude, some maniac trying to get inside, take their stuff, or even try to murder them. I sigh, replying that I hope that's not the case. A wild bear would be far more simple to deal with than some murderer being on the loose. We sat quiet for a while, with me growing more and more tired from the long day by the minute. About 45 minutes of waiting in, my partner shakes me to get my attention. I apparently did end up dozing off for a second, but my partner is now not speaking clearly. He's just pointing out the window and stuttering. I squint my eyes, and then I see what he's pointing at. There's an absolutely massive figure walking between the trees and the woods. Whoever it is is sort of looking at the trailer home. Their eyes occasionally flicker with yellow, reflecting light from the moon. This guy must have been eight feet tall, not even joking. I shake my head and try to wake up a bit and realize that what I'm looking at can't just be some guy. People don't get that big. And this thing is huge. He's big around as a couple of oak trees fused together. Darker than that, too. The two of us, in a panic, debate on whether or not to get out at all. I didn't think we were dealing with a person anymore. I got on the radio with dispatch letting them know that they should probably send out some animal control. I simply say that we got a pretty big bear out here. 
I know that was a lie, but I wasn't about to make myself sound crazy. I watched the creature stalk the woods back and forth. I'm sitting there praying in my head that it doesn't come out of those trees. Eventually, it disappears back into the woods, and I think I literally sigh with relief. A few moments later, a massive, head-sized rock hits my partner's window. We both curse, and he nearly climbs on top of me. Animal control eventually arrives, and I finally feel safe enough to leave the car. I tell the guys what we saw, and don't know if it's still out there either. They joke about it being Bigfoot, but we didn't deny that. At first, they laughed until they saw our reaction to it. We went back to the family inside and let them know that there may be a large bear around the property. Animal control took over from there, and we reported back to the station. After this experience, honestly, I do believe that Bigfoot exists. In my mind... There is no mistake that we saw something that night that didn't match up with our current reality. Something that wasn't human. I'm much more easy to believe people rather than accusing them of being on drugs. I Saw Death From Anonymous I was an EMT when I was younger. I worked in the Pacific Northwest and saw all sorts of disgusting things. I've pulled parts of people out of mangled cars. I've seen people die right in front of me. The light fade away from their eyes, so to speak. I've seen people live through things where they'd rather be dead. But the most unexplainable and bizarre thing I've ever experienced happened at an elderly woman's home in the middle of some upper-middle-class suburbs. This particular woman was apparently quite a nuisance, making her neighbors' lives a living hell, and was known to make false police reports, but somehow stayed out of jail. It might be because she needed a walker just to get from her bed to the window, where she loved to spy on her neighbors and shout at kids walking down the sidewalk. Apparently, she even had the cops called on her before, because she allegedly hit her poor elderly husband, who passed away not too long after these events. It was the husband who dialed 911 that day. When we arrived, we found the woman still, but only barely breathing, on the floor with her eyes wide open. She was staring straight up, with a terrified expression. It looked like she was going to pass at any moment. It looked as if she had had a heart attack. After placing an oxygen mask on her, she stopped breathing, and I began to perform CPR. But it was soon clear that she was gone, and we had to call it. My partner takes the husband out of the room and goes to prepare the stretcher. I'm in the room alone with her. I'm sitting there next to her on the floor when something I can't see just yanks and rips the oxygen mask off of her. I gasp, and then I swear to God I see this inhumanly thin hand fade into existence, squeeze her face, then yank hard. Instead of her body reacting to the force, something like a white sheet is pulled away from within her, 
before both the hand and this sheet disappear. That's when I realized I'd stopped breathing myself, and I had had my back to the wall. I was horrified, and not entirely sure what I saw. We waited for a medical examiner to confirm the death. But since that day, I could not stop thinking about what I saw. I was sure that I saw death taking her. Sometimes the first responders see such horrifying things that even they wish they were dead. Or at the very least, the first responders themselves need some first responders. Or does that make them second responders? Good night. If you enjoyed this episode of Darkness Prevails, be sure to like, share, comment, and subscribe. If you have a scary story of your own, particularly a scary story of what you've seen in your home security cameras, share it with us at darkstories.org. If you want to support the show, you can check the links below. There's a link to my Patreon and a link to my merch store. Until next time, here are the credits to my amazing patrons who continue to donate and help us stay afloat. More scary stories are coming soon, so don't worry. Remember, stay safe out there, or stay creepy, because this world is a strange one. Today I have some disturbing creature encounters, but I want to start off with a bit of a weird one. So I was looking at my submissions the other night when I saw that one of the most popular submissions as of late also happened to be one of the weirdest. Let me just ask you this. What would you do if you encountered two werewolves? Going at it. Getting down to business in a way that would make Mulan proud. A couple of wolfies enjoying some Netflix and chill. Anyway, yeah, that would be disturbing in multiple ways. The only thing worse than that would probably be walking in on your parents. That being said, enjoy the first story titled, I Walked In on Two Werewolves Mating, from Poetic Dom, followed by more normal scary stories. Ugh, I already have chills. As I drove along the highway, I'd seemed to have taken a wrong turn. The old GPS my father had given me was basically flipping me off at this point, and my cell had about 4% battery. I pulled into a nearby rest stop so as to not get further lost. I needed to see where on earth I was. The sun was gently dipping behind the very dense forest just behind the building, I went inside to relieve myself, and thankfully there was actually a roll of toilet paper there. After my personal business concluded, I washed my hands and headed back to my car. I opened the door, and suddenly I heard noises coming from the forest. These noises were strange. Breathing. Heavy breathing. Very heavy breathing. I guess panting would be more accurate. The sound was quite familiar. I thought, wow, with a smirk. There's really someone out there getting it on. 
right in the middle of the woods. I stood still for a minute to acclimate my eyes to the darkness. I creeped closer very slowly, but the closer I got, the more I thought, that doesn't sound like people. This panting was very guttural, primal. About twenty yards later, I began to make shapes out, forms. Then I backed up a few yards, swallowing hard and wondering if this was a good idea. I pulled up my phone and unlocked it. I decided maybe I should find a night vision app. The best one I could find at the time was $9.99. That was expensive for an app. Oh well. I could have quite the story to tell and pictures to share if I could snap a photo of these weird animals going at it. Maybe they're bears or something. Might even be able to sell the photograph to some nature magazine. But maybe that's wishful thinking. I downloaded and opened the app. I pointed it at the forms I could see as stealthily as possible. I inched forward, and I could not believe my eyes. I was quite impressed with the app, first of all. It was quite a difference from my normal camera. I thought the app would just be a scam. I assumed that night vision was a thing that had to be built in the hardware, but whatever this software was doing, it was a really good job. But before me, there were two animals. But they were unlike any animals I'd ever seen. One of them was on all fours. It had dark, silvery-gray fur. But seeing fur on a figure that had a feminine shape, it was quite bizarre. Because I swear there were bumps signaling female anatomy. It was like the perfect blend of human and some furry mammal features. Features that resembled a wolf. There were paws where hands and feet should have been, adorned with large claws. And behind the female stood a male, claws firmly gripping onto her haunches. This male was at least seven feet tall and probably 450 pounds. It was rock-solid muscle covered with a blacker-than-black fur. Then he howled or screamed some nightmarish sound, feral and textured. Before I could take pictures, I was so terrified from the sound that I ducked down. I began to crawl back to my vehicle, horrified that these things might see me. Some animals can be far more aggressive during mating. Halfway back to the vehicle, like an idiot... I stepped on a fallen branch. I quickly looked back at the two forms. They were now facing me, both in the same stance now, and I couldn't help but feel they were looking at me like a fat kid eyeing some whopper. I sprinted back to the car, opened the door, jumped in and slammed the door shut. A second after I did that, a loud thud came from my roof. Both of them had jumped on it and from both sides a head peeked in from the car windows. I slipped the key in and started the engine, flooring it out of there as quickly as I could. I did not stop until I reached the end of my road. To make sure I wasn't followed, I cracked my window and took a picture of the car roof first. Nothing was there. They hadn't latched on, and a picture of the surrounding area showed that I hadn't been followed either. That was a crazy night.
Now on to the normal, serious stories. Totsil Worm, from Eric M. I was born and raised in a small village in the southwest of Germany, on the banks of the river Moselle. It's a very nice and quiet place, with an ancient castle on the top of a hill towering over it. We have a local myth about a Totselberm, and in the center of the village there is even a fountain in the shape of a Totselberm, dedicated to it. A Totselberm is a dragon-like creature, but without wings. It is said to spit poisonous breath. Now, my friend Kai and I were quite fascinated by this myth. There is a path a little outside of our village leading into a forest, and legend has it that this path was used in the past by this beast when it came to prey on livestock and peasants. The path is even named for it. On a moonlit night, Kai and I wandered that path. We brought cameras, flashlights, and each of us even carried a small pocket knife. Even though we knew if that beast really did exist, it would attack us, and everything we'd brought would be useless. A few hours into our investigation, there was still nothing to be found. We smiled at one another, figuring the legend really was just BS. All of a sudden, we heard a hiss behind us, and in shock we turned around, pointing our flashlights in the direction that the noise had come from. It came from the thick brush behind us, which was now rattling. The hissing grew louder, but we were frozen with fear, kept our lights pointed at the rattling bush. Then we saw it. A scaly creature. The best way I can describe it is that it looked like a Komodo dragon, but without its hind legs. But the front legs were still there, which bore sharp claws. The head was quite flat, and I guess in total its length was about thirteen feet. The front legs were quite muscular, and it dragged its heavy body along the way with them. It began to come towards us, and we were too surprised and disturbed to react quickly. It didn't launch at us, but moved very slowly. Our instincts took over. What if we could prove the legend to be true? What if we were the ones to actually discover this species? We looked at each other, then each of us grabbed a big rock, forgetting we even had pocket knives, and began to bash the creature until it stopped moving entirely. What now? I asked. We knew there was no way we could carry the thing back to the village, and to be honest, we still weren't sure if it was dead and we were too afraid to touch it. After all, our adrenaline had worn off. We decided to go get the police, or the fire brigade, some sort of authority. We'd call them and wait at the main road, as the path was too narrow for cars. So we called and waited. Then when they arrived, we shared our experience again of nearly being attacked by some animal, and in a hurry, we began to show them the way towards it. We arrived where we had been before, and we scoured the forest, trying to find the Totsoferm. But where it was supposed to be lying, it was gone. How could this be, I thought to myself. Kai and I looked at each other confused. 
The policeman, however, did not take too kindly to the whole situation, and threatened us that fake calling the police could be fined with up to 400 euros. They reminded us that there are real emergencies out there, and that we were taking time and attention away from the people who need it. We felt terrible. We knew then we should have calmed down and taken some pictures before we called the police. But we know what we saw that night. We know what we thought we attacked. And now I'm hoping that attacking it in the first place was not a good idea. Will-O-Wisps From Annie This is something that has been going on for a while now, over the span of a few years. I keep seeing these twinkling lights in the woods at night. They blink on and then twinkle past the window, drifting like feathers. This started back at around the summer of 2015. Back then, I used to be a lifeguard, so I would go and stay at my grandmother's house for the summer. My grandmother lives in a wooded area. For some context, the room I stay in has one window facing the side of the house, which has no trees, and the other window faces the woods and the tree line. The first time I saw the lights was when I was lying in bed. I thought that they were fireflies at first, except they're light blue, teal in color. They kind of just drift lazily by the outside windowsill. I didn't feel threatened or afraid. They didn't really give off any sort of presence. Not at first, because that summer I didn't really pay much mind, and I was still under the impression that they could just be fireflies. Well, the year 2015 came and went, and then I was back for the summer of 2016. Once again, I began noticing these lights. I would chalk it up once more to fireflies, but then I noticed that they always drift around in the same exact spots. Which, I'm no expert though, it's odd behavior for fireflies. I've always believed in the paranormal but I was still very much convinced that these lights were natural, not something out of the ordinary. Soon it was July, and I realized something. I realized that the lights couldn't be fireflies, because I've seen them with fireflies, and the color, as I mentioned before, is not the same. They also look more like Christmas tree lights or twinkling little stars. I also came to the realization that it couldn't possibly be fireflies because... I only started seeing them during the summer of 2015, and fireflies have been around here longer than that. Well, August of 2016 rolls around soon, and I start seeing them inside the house too, dancing around the pictures on the walls in particular, usually along the frames, or near the mirror and the light fixture. These seem to be their three favorite spots, this further reaffirmed to me that fireflies are definitely out of the equation. This kind of thing continued through 2017, and I have since acquired more proof that it can't be fireflies, or any sort of bug, because it happened in the late autumn months of that year too. Despite them now being inside, I didn't think of them being evil or frightening. It's been three years, and they hadn't done anything bad. That said... They aren't good, per se, either. They just kind of exist. I just have no clue what they could be. 
I've shared this story with other people, and the most common term I hear for them is will-o'-wisps. It's a theory that I'm fond of. Another one I hear is aliens or angels, but I don't know about that. The reason I'm sharing this now is because something happened that stood out and reminded me of these appearances. I went to visit my grandmother just this year for the holidays, and I saw them again. This time, it was a little different than before. After seeing them, I saw something else. I drifted off to sleep as usual, but woke up in the middle of the night. There was a light of the same blue color that would flash every few seconds. At first, I thought it could have been a police car, but the flashing was very clearly coming from the woods, not by the roads. At the time, my brother was on the bottom bunk, but he slept through it. I'm not sure if this is related to the original Teal Twinkles, or if it's something else entirely, but it was quite interesting. This may not be the creepiest story, but it is a weird one. What are these blue, floating things? Why do they like our pictures? Thank you for giving me a chance to be heard. Attacked by a Wendigo from Green Arrow M765 It was August of 2018. My family owns a piece of property up in the mountains of Wyoming. I won't say where it is located for the sake of privacy. It's right next to a national forest, though. My family has been going up to the property for as long as I could remember. We even finished building a small cabin right before this story took place. Now I've been hunting and been out in the forest with my dad and brothers for as long as I've been able to handle a rifle. I'm pretty comfortable in the woods, and while we have on occasion come across predators, such as mountain lions and bears, after this encounter I may never feel safe in the woods again. In Wyoming, we get snow earlier in the year, especially in the mountains, so we have to winterize the cabin so that the pipes don't burst with the cold and we put up wood covers over the windows, so if they somehow break, the cabin can still be sealed. Now, normally, my dad and I go and do this, but this year he was working a lot, trying to make more money before the snow slowed him down till spring. My brothers were busy with their jobs, too, so my dad asked me to winterize the cabin myself. I decided to make a weekend out of it, since it was probably the last time I'd be able to make it up there that year. That Friday, I packed my bags, and I took two of our dogs with me. One was an Australian Shepherd, and the other was a small Poodle Mix. The drive up was uneventful, but the closer I got to the cabin, I did notice that there was little to no wildlife, which is unusual for this time of year, especially as the sun was setting and it was prime time for deer and other animals to be out and about. When me and the dogs finally got to the cabin, the sun was just slipping behind the horizon. Now where the cabin sits is on top of a large hill that looks out over a long valley, and you can see the peaks of some mountains in the distance, as well as the National Forest, which is about a mile and a half to the south. It really is a breathtaking view. That night, however... Everything just seemed a little off. I chalked it up to me being by myself up there. 
I grabbed my bags and went into the cabin. Later that night, probably around 2 a.m., I was awakened by the strangest sound I'd ever heard. Like the mix of a woman wailing and some kind of dog howling, mixed with a gurgling at the end. It was very loud. Now, my little poodle mix is pretty much fearless. He has a bad case of little man syndrome and was growling but my Australian shepherd was whining in the corner of the room, which was not normal for her. She generally was very protective. The noise came and went for the next few hours, but eventually I fell back to sleep. The next morning when I woke up, I somehow convinced myself that it had been some kind of weird dream that I'd had. I was determined not to let it ruin the rest of my weekend, but even so... I grabbed my dad's shotgun that I'd brought, just in case. It's never a bad idea to be armed when there are predators out there in the first place. It may have been late in the year, but there was still a large population of rattlesnakes in the area. Now, at the bottom of the valley, there is a small creek that runs through our property, and it had rained a lot that year, so we actually had water, which is unusual in Wyoming. It was only the second time that I can remember being up here with some rain, so I was kind of excited to spend the day there. I packed up the four-wheeler and set off. One of the things that should have been a red flag, though, was that neither of the dogs wanted to go when they normally loved exploring those woods. I was young and dumb, so I didn't think much about it. When I made it to the creek, I spent the day chasing toads, dipping my feet in the water. When the sun began to set, I decided it was time to head home. On the way back to the four-wheeler, I noticed that there was a smell, like rotting flesh, coming from a patch of brush nearby. Of course, I decided to go check this out. What I saw was a large bull that looked like it had been torn to shreds. It seemed like maybe a bear must have done it. A bear was the only thing I thought could be big enough to do that. I don't know if you've ever seen a bull up close but one that's full-grown is huge, close to a thousand pounds. And just thinking that there was some predator out here that could do that to a bull, I didn't want to know what it could do to me. I wanted to get out of there, to get back to the cabin as fast as possible. When I got back, I put the wood covers over the downstairs doors and windows, just to be safe, and I turned off the lights outside. I ate a quick dinner and went to bed, just wishing that it was morning so I could leave, because between the bull and the screeching from last night, I knew that whatever was out there was not a natural predator. My grandpa, who was a full-blooded Cherokee, used to tell me stories of the creatures that roamed the woods, but I always chalked them up to him just trying to scare me. These days, I can't be sure. I nodded off at some point only to be awakened by the sound of screeching, the same sound from the night before. It was much closer now. It was so loud that I thought my ears were going to start bleeding. Like the night before, the screeching would stop and start back up, steadily getting closer. I lay there in horror, until one screech sounded like it was right outside. My God, I whispered to myself. To my horror, something whispered back, like an echo of my own words. My God. I was frozen to the bed, 
My smallest dog was growling for all he was worth, and that's when we heard the sound of metal being scratched at, slowly, deliberately. It was coming from over by the window. The way the basement is, the bedroom I was in was too high up for anything to get at. But then the glass in the window shattered, and this long, bony, ash-white arm with claws at the end reached in, followed by an identical arm, and then a head of what looked like a deer's skull, skin hanging off in strips, and then that familiar smell hit me, that one of rotting flesh. It was so bad and rancid it made my eyes burn. It was by far the worst smell I've ever smelled. It slowly pulled itself in through the window, revealing a long, skinny frame that was as skinny as the rest of it, with ribs poking against its skin. And when it was fully inside, it had to hunch itself over to fit in the room. It had to have been at least eight feet tall, probably bigger. My God. It once again repeated what I had said. It was like it was mocking me. The lights in my room were on but dim, so I could still plainly see it. It was truly horrifying. The teeth on the deer were pointed more like a cat's. I looked down towards its chest and saw a second head, one that was like a person with no nose. It was so sunk in you could see every bone it had. Its teeth were long and pointed, and where its mouth should have been was a black tongue that flicked in and out like it was tasting the air. It was approaching my bed. When it was almost at the foot of my bed, my little dog launched himself at the thing, biting at its legs. It had a look of utter confusion on its face when this happened, like it couldn't believe that it was being attacked by something so puny. It reached for my dog, but that's when I finally broke out of my stupor. I was not going to let it hurt my dog. While I sat there, I reached over and grabbed my shotgun. I was praying aloud, too. My praying got this thing's attention, its face twisted in pain or anger. I flipped off the safety, and I fired right at its chest. It barely moved, but I did see some of it tear through. It screeched again. With that, it turned and leapt out the window, vanishing into the night. I noticed my poor dog had been thrown toward the wall. He wasn't moving now, and I was terrified he was dead. I rushed over, and I saw that he was still breathing, but he would not get up. I noticed there were gashes across my chest as well, and my shirt was soaked in red. I reloaded the shotgun, picking up my poor dog, and I practically had to drag my other one from underneath the bed. We made a mad dash to my truck and drove out of there as fast as we could. I could still hear that thing screeching in the woods in those mountains. We left that place and raced toward town. I found a vet who looked at my poor dog. He had a few broken ribs and he broke his front leg, but he healed up just fine. When we were done there, I was taken to the hospital. I got some stitches, but I was going to be okay too. Ever since that night, I haven't been to the woods or back to our cabin, 
and I don't have any intention yet of going back. When I told my grandfather what happened, he said that he believed I was attacked by a Wendigo. And from what I've heard and researched, maybe he's right. All that I can say is never go to the mountains alone. Listen to your gut. Never go unarmed. And if you do encounter something, have a gun ready and pray. Those may be the only things that can save you. It Wanted Us to Follow From Alvin J. Over the last summer, not long after I turned 16, my boyfriend was working the closing shift at our local subway. Most nights I'd go hang out with him for the last hour of his shift. We'd been doing this all summer. I'd walk over from my apartment a few blocks away, then we'd walk back together after his shift was over. We live in a small town in Colorado. Because of this, the subway is near a lot of pod shops, and we encounter a lot of high a-holes. Some of them are alright. Aside from the stoners, we also get a decent amount of hate from people. Most of our town is a bunch of conservative Christians. Nearly all of them are fine and keep to themselves, but there are the rare few that are homophobic jerks. For that, my boyfriend and I get a lot of crap for being openly in a gay relationship. Sometimes we even get racist people who need to make some negative comment about my boyfriend being black. But whatever we encountered that night, I would quickly take those awful people over it. On the night in question, my boyfriend was once again working alone. The place was never really busy during the last shift, especially not on a weeknight. My boyfriend and I, of course, didn't care. It just meant we could actually talk without having someone potentially listen in. Like always, we encountered a stoner or two and maybe one normal customer. Things were completely typical, and we only had to last another half hour before it was over. We were having a conversation about whatever show the two of us had been watching together at the time, over the last few weeks. Then my boyfriend stopped when he noticed that someone was standing inside next to the door. We never did hear the bell ring, but we brushed it off. He was wearing dark clothes with a hood that hid his face. He didn't look like the tall, slender monsters that you always hear about and see in horror films. He looked like a guy, slightly below average in height and a bit wider. I sat at one of the tables to drink a soda and let my boyfriend make the guy a sandwich. But the guy didn't move. He just stood there, staring. I couldn't tell if he was staring at me or my boyfriend, but he, or it, was definitely staring at one of us. Eventually, my boyfriend told him that he couldn't stay unless he ordered something. But that thing didn't move. It didn't react at all. I didn't know what I was up with him, or what I thought was a person. There was no smell of alcohol or weed on him, so from what I could tell so far, he wasn't under the influence of anything, and he clearly wasn't here to cause trouble. Most people don't scare me. I typically scare them. I'm not big, but I'm not small. I'm 5'10", and I take care of myself. But I do have a very punk look, the kind of look that is taboo and sketchy in a small town like ours. 
Even if my own ability to repel people doesn't make me feel safe, my boyfriend still does. He's 6'2 and was very strong. Even knowing that both of us are bigger and are likely stronger than this thing, it still put me on edge. This thing just stood there until it was time to close. My boyfriend began cleaning everything, since the guy clearly wasn't going to order. Once my boyfriend had finished cleaning and putting things away, we got ready to leave. We told the thing it would have to leave, that the place was closing down. This time, it reacted, raising its arm and pointing in the direction of the highway. Its skin was white, not pale, but white, pure white with no other color, like a porcelain doll. I just stepped outside, holding the door for my boyfriend, and that thing as it walked out. My boyfriend walked out first, and it followed. I closed the door and let my boyfriend lock up. As soon as he was done, that thing made a gesture for us, to come to it, then pointed once again to the highway. But I grabbed my boyfriend's hand and we began to walk the other direction. We didn't get more than a few feet away from where we were standing, when each of us felt an unnaturally warm hand grab onto our wrists. That thing was holding on to us and began to pull us toward the road. This was when I saw its face. It looked like skin directly on top of its skull with no muscle or fat in between the two at all. Just the literal skin and bones. Its skin was the same white color as its hands. Its eyes were just empty sockets. Not like there was nothing there to begin with, but more like its eyes had been removed. The two of us tried to pull our arms away, but this thing was a lot stronger than we'd expected. Once we were halfway across the road, my boyfriend managed to break free from its grasp. I wasn't strong enough, though. It kept pulling me in the direction of the highway. I'm not ashamed to admit that at this point, I was in tears, terrified. My boyfriend pulled me away from it just as it reached the other side of the road, and we ran across the street together. We looked back to see if it followed us. It was now standing on the grass patch between the town road and the highway. It motioned for us to come and pointed once again to the highway. Without us making a move, that thing began walking towards the road. It stepped onto the highway right in front of a large truck, and when the truck passed over it, it was still walking across the highway. Many other cars seemingly passed right through it as it crossed, but it eventually made it to the other side, and simply vanished. Once it was out of sight, I felt my boyfriend grab my hand way too tightly and began running back to my house. We rushed inside of my house and slammed the door. My mom was concerned to see us panicking and out of breath. We told her the story, which she didn't believe. Maybe we had just seen things, she said. Neither of us have seen that thing since, aside from possibly nightmares, and we still don't know what it was. I want to tell myself it was a bad dream, but we both experienced it. We both know it was real. All I know for sure is that I never want to see it again. Not in real life. Not in my imagination. Never. 
Some very creepy critters and creatures crawl across our paths from time to time, so you'd better be ready to see the worst. Can you handle the weird, the terrifying? Can you handle two werewolves in the middle of Netflix and chill? I know I can't. Now, if you'll excuse me, I have some nightmares to attend to. Good night. If you enjoyed this episode of Darkness Prevails, be sure to like, share, comment, and subscribe. If you have a story of your own, share it with us at darkstories.org. I would love to narrate it. If you want to support the show, check the links below. There's a link to my Patreon where you can donate and keep us afloat. And there's a link to my merch store where you can get some creepy clothes. Well, this episode is over, but don't you worry because more scary stories are on the way. So stay tuned. Until next time, here are the credits to my amazing patrons who continue to donate. They're great people. Remember, stay safe out there and stay creepy because this world is a strange one. Out of the way trailer parks middle of nowhere homesteads, isolation from others. The boondocks is defined as rough, remote, or isolated country, and that's where some of the spookiest stuff goes down. Today, I have five scary stories about the horrors that go down in the boondocks. If you have a scary story of your own, share it with us at darkstories.org. I'd love to hear tales about forbidden places, now, let's begin. The Haunted Trailer from James E. F. Back in the 1990s in the state of Virginia, I was a kid. My family lived in a small trailer park. I had two brothers and a sister, and I was the oldest of my siblings. But because of my smaller-than-average size and my youthful luck, I didn't look nearly like I was the oldest. Growing up, I remember my parents mentioning that my youngest brother would get up in the middle of the night, screaming and running around the trailer. My dad would grab him and calm him down, and afterwards he would help my brother back into the bedroom. My baby brother also mentioned that he would see things at night, but I never thought much about it, because I never believed in ghosts or the boogeyman, and thought that the things he saw were just in his head. That is, until I saw something that I'll never forget. One night I got up late. I had to go to the bathroom. Lucky for me, it wasn't too far away from the bedroom that I shared with my brothers. After I flushed the toilet and washed my hands, I turned off the light, and I opened the door. But there, standing in our hallway, was something that I still can't explain. I saw some kind of figure right there in the hallway, close to my bedroom door. It was all white, so white it almost seemed bright in the dark, but it had no light. I could make out that it had the shape of a human and that's about all I could see. 
I couldn't tell what their face looked like. I couldn't see the rest of their body. Not in detail. At first, I thought it was my mom or dad checking in on me and my siblings. My parents' bedroom was all the way at the other end of the trailer, so I thought I would have heard them if they walked past the bathroom. And even though I thought it was one of my parents, I found myself too scared to ask who they were or what they were doing. I was afraid that if I went to my room, the thing would lunge at me, and I was too scared to go back in the bathroom because I figured it would come after me and try to get in. As I stood there, I then began to think, what if it wasn't my mom or dad? I wanted to scream for help, but I thought if I made any noise at all, this mysterious thing, this figure, would come for me. As I stood there with fear thinking about what I should do, I realized that I couldn't stand there all night. I had to make a decision. I began to move back to my bedroom, never taking my eyes off of the white figure in the hall. I closed the door to my room, got into my bed, and I hid under the covers. For the next few days and nights, things were just normal, and I never thought of the mysterious figure again. That is, until several nights later. I woke up, and I could not sleep for some reason after that. So I lay there on my left side in bed, facing towards the wall. Eventually, I turned over to the right, and there I saw the figure again. Only this time, it was right next to my bed. My brothers and I have a bunk bed, and I sleep on the bottom bunk. Whatever this thing was, it was kneeling next to the bed. I know that it was kneeling. It didn't seem to be as tall when I saw it before. However, after my second encounter with this thing, I finally realized that it wasn't my mom or dad. When I saw it again, I still could not see its face. I wanted to scream like before, but once again, I was afraid. Afraid that if I made any sound, it would try to silence me, attack me. It was so close to me that if it wanted to, it could have managed to hurt me before my parents could reach the room to help. Once again, I pulled the covers and sheets over my head, too scared to sleep, and I hoped it would go away. I never did see the mysterious white human figure again. When I finally had the courage to tell my family what I saw, none of them believed me. My sister and her friends who come over to visit would often tease me whenever they remembered the story. They thought it was funny to joke around and say that they had seen the mysterious thing too. I knew that they were lying, though, by the tones of their voices and their laughter. Even my youngest brother, who said he would see people at night in his window or in the bedroom, never believed my story, especially as he got older. Around the year 2013, my family moved out of the trailer and moved into a new house. We never had to go back. As for my little brother, he would tell people about the things he saw in that trailer as a kid. He would continue to claim they were real, but never believe my own stories. Over the years as we grew up, my sister got married and moved out to live on her own. She started to reveal to people her own tales 
Turns out she's now having some strange experiences in the house she lives in now. First Encounters of the Hairy Variety From Raido I grew up in a very rural, poverty-stricken part of North Carolina, about a mile away from Tar River. The area in which I lived was a bit swampy, with heavy, dense woods all around the single-wide home that we lived in. During the summers, when we had abundant time to spend traipsing around the creeks and fields around the area, my siblings and I would spend from dawn until well after dusk playing around in the woods, the river, everywhere, basically. As children, our parents argued a lot. We were very poor and they would frequently fight about jobs and money for days and days, so we always preferred to be out of earshot of them. This meant we'd have to play outside, and that meant we played in the forest. Now, we'd always had some experiences around the river, but we could always explain it away. Branches snapping, rocks tossed around, the crunching of leaves in the distance. Nothing was as scary as being at home with them, though. Looking back, I think something was influencing my parents' attitudes and emotions. But that's a whole different story. The first time I saw one, it was just the beginning of fall. The sun had almost gone completely down, leaving a sliver of red and purple that faded into a black abyss. My parents had a huge argument that ended with both of them raging out of the house. My mother sped off in her car, and my dad walked out into the darkness of the woods. As a few hours passed, I began to grow worried about the whereabouts of my dad. So I strapped on my boots, grabbed my dog, and walked out the door. I began to walk around our small backyard, trying to find any clue to where my dad had gone. I looked behind me, and upon the ridge I saw a shadow walking around, the moon illuminating the sky. I decided that must be my father, and ran up to the tall hill to meet him. At the top I looked around, but I didn't see anyone. And then suddenly my dog, a very laid-back and soft pit bull, growled this horrible, guttural sound. I felt the hair on my neck shoot straight up, my arms covered in goosebumps. Without thinking, I shot down the hill, running as quickly as my legs could carry me. As I got to where the property began, I saw my dad sitting on a felled log. He looked angry still and his expression softened a bit when he saw my face. Dad, were you just up on the hill? I asked. I was exhausted by then. He looked at me perplexed. No, I've been here the whole time. I saw you walk up there and wondered what you were doing, where you were going. He explained. I told him we should probably go back inside, since there's probably a bear around. As we were heading back in, my mother pulled up, got out of her car, and told my dad, We need to talk about this. I went inside, figuring they would sit in the car and talk about things. Things that I didn't want to hear about. In the back of our yard, we had a makeshift fire pit, which they had decided to sit around as they talked. 
About five minutes after I walked inside and began to get ready for bed, I heard banging on our back door. It was my mom. Open this door, now! My room was right beside the back door, so I rushed to it, unlocking the door to see the terrified faces of my parents tripping over each other to get inside. Then I saw it, standing just outside the line of trees, holding a decent-sized sapling it had snapped. All I could do was stare at it. This thing screamed, a bone-chilling howl. I snapped out of my trance and slammed the weak door closed and locked it. Though I knew if it really wanted to get in, it could just rip the door off the trailer. I stopped going in the woods after that. Every spring and autumn they would come through. I don't know what they are. I don't know if they migrate, what it is they do at all. But as they come through, they whoop and they holler. They whistle and they scream. They bang on the sides of the trailer. The second time I saw one, I was trying to get some sleep. A hard thing to do when one suffers from insomnia. I finally gave up trying and turned over to get a book to read. When I noticed the shadow being cast on the floor from my window... Slowly, I shifted my gaze up to the window. There, sort of stooping down, stood one of them. It was peering into my window, resting one of its hands upon the AC unit outside. It tapped on the glass and let out a low whistle. I lay in my bed, just staring into whatever it was. It stood there letting out various whistles and clicks for about ten minutes, before it tapped one last time. Then it stepped back and walked back into the woods. I didn't feel threatened. I think maybe it was just curious. There's a lot of mysterious, weird things that go on in the swampy woods around Tar River in North Carolina. Some things natural, and some things otherworldly. Paranormal Magnet from Xanathar I'm 41 years old, and I've had a life full of strange things that I cannot explain. I'm not one of those types that just believes every little thing I hear or see. I prefer to be skeptical before I make any judgments. That being said, I want to share this experience that happened to me in my early 20s. I was living in Arizona at the time, around late 1997. I used to live in a desert area, close to some large peaks on federal land. I'd found this peak-side cove. Not quite a cave, but a semi-half-cave. I even brought my friend there a couple of times to hike and hang out. One day we rolled some huge boulders off the peak and watched them smash everything below. We had slingshots that we would shoot at rotting cactus, and we would listen to the rocks ricochet. Well, one day I went there all alone. I had an ominous feeling like I was not welcome there, and that danger was near. The next thing I knew, I hear a helicopter in the distance. People really weren't supposed to be on federal land, so I took it as a sign to get the heck out of Dodge. 
I had a bike which I rode as fast as I could home, which was about two to four miles away. I went to the backyard to soak my head in our pool. It was hot that day. A few seconds later, a black unmarked helicopter shows up literally a mere couple hundred feet from my home's roof, just hovering there, seemingly watching me. I thought to myself, don't look up at it, just pet your dog. Eventually, the helicopter flew away, and I really didn't think much more of it. It was weird. Okay, no big deal. Right? A month or two passed, and things began to get really strange. I never did sleepwalk or have night terrors or any kind of sleep disorder, but I would keep waking up to a cloud or mist that was in a small human-shaped form above me. I would swat at it with pillows or my fist and not know what was going on. Every few months, this would happen. In fact, this kept going on from late 1997 all the way to 2004. Later on, I moved away, got married, and actually moved a few more times. But no matter where I moved, still these clouds followed. My ex-wife even witnessed one at the same time but also mentioned that for a couple of years into the marriage, I would sometimes sit up in my sleep, eyes wide open, and speak seemingly ancient-sounding language. We laughed it all off as silly. Soon 2004 came. This was the final time I ever had any more sleep disturbances. There was a night when my ex-wife worked very late. Till around 2 or 3 a.m., I was way asleep by this time, or I should have been. Upon her arrival home, there was howling and growling all around our cabin, with no visible, reasonable source like dogs or coyotes to be seen. My ex was scared and got inside very quickly. She could hear more growling inside the home. It was from the room in which I was sleeping. She came into the dark room and saw me standing on the bed, looking contorted. She even thought that my eyes had blackened. She thought I was doing a usual sleepwalking type thing at first, then went to touch me to get me to lay back down, just as she would in the past. However, all hell broke loose. She said my contorted body leapt at her. She screamed and prepared to defend herself, she said I was making some kind of demonic, screeching, wailing sound. I think I partially remember that part. Maybe part of my subconscious was awake or something. But I came to then, and I was as terrified as she was. I had to calm her down after I came to. I told her that I was in control now. It was me. But even my voice was beyond creepy. She claims it sounded like the Indrid Cold voice from that Richard Gere Mothman Prophecies movie. Our bedroom door, as well, had somehow shut itself, and my cat was pacing around frantically to leave. Now, you might say it was a night terror. I know what those are, and while it seems similar, I had one last experience two weeks later. I had a statue of Apollo. I woke up one night and saw its eyes bright blue. I was scared, but I picked it up and put it away from the window into complete darkness, 
but somehow its eyes were still glowing. Instead of being afraid, I simply put it on the floor with a blanket over it. And after that, not since 2004 have I woke up seeing something ghostly or cloud-like or strange. I haven't even talked in my sleep. I'm not into religion, but a little bit of faith doesn't hurt, I guess. This may be ridiculous to some, but I know what happened to me was real, and I don't really need to prove it to anyone. I'd love to hear stories from those with similar tales. My house growing up was haunted. From Rosie Thorne, 828. I live in New Hampshire in a tiny town in the middle of nowhere. I'm not sure what the exact population of my village is, but you can easily walk from one end of the town to the other in less than half an hour. My town, which I will call Small Place, is on a large lake connected to several smaller lakes. My mom, brother, and I live on one of those smaller lakes. I wanted to tell people about my experiences in this house, because they've gotten much worse in the past few months, ever since my grandma died. My grandma, who passed away about ten months ago, had lived in the house for just over twenty years. No one had owned the house before that. This place was a completely blank slate, which I think is why so many spirits feel at home here. My grandparents are both dead now, but when they were younger, they owned an antique shop which I suspect held many cursed or haunted items. Eventually, my grandparents retired, and much of what was in the shop moved into my current home with them. My grandpa, or Gramps, my mom's dad, was a bit of a hoarder, so most of the furniture and other knick-knacks in the house were his. He collected everything from model soldiers to ventriloquist dummies, even music boxes. And for better or for worse, a lot of these objects had energies about them, and I think some of them had spirits attached to them. One of my first paranormal experiences in the house was from when I was very young. There was a large wooden puppet or doll that always sat behind a bar downstairs in our sitting area. The doll could be seen when you walked up or down the stairs. And for whatever reason, my little brother and I were always scared of it. Anytime we'd go up the stairs, we would hear that puppet creak or see it move out of the corner of our eyes. Then we would sprint back upstairs. Honestly, I never really understood why we kept the dumb thing. But whenever we tried to move it, it would wind up right back at the bottom of the stairs behind the bar. I remember one time when I was 11 or 12, I decided to conduct an experiment of sorts. I moved the doll puppet thingy while everyone was upstairs for dinner, and when we came back down, it had moved. I knew that no one had been downstairs and there was no way the puppet had been brought back to its usual sitting place. This is only one instance of a haunting in my house, and there are many other entities that don't seem to have specific items they're attached to. One of these is the ghost on the stairs. About a year ago, we finally got rid of that doll-slash-puppet from before. 
but for some reason my brother and I still found the stairs to have some negative energy about them, which became even more apparent when we got a dog. We got a Shih Tzu, who we named Charlie. This only happened around a month ago, and it's what prompted me to record my experiences. So my brother and I were hanging out downstairs, when we hear my mom whistle for us. My mom can do this really loud, two-finger whistle that she uses to get our attention when we're playing video games. We head upstairs, and I'm in front of my brother. As I'm going, I stub my toe on something sharp, and I begin to fall. My brother tries to catch me, but I end up causing both of us to fall down the stairs. At that moment, our mom comes in the front door with Charlie, who immediately runs to the top of the stairs and begins to bark like mad, almost like he wants to help, but he's too scared to actually come down the stairs. My brother and I ask my mom what she wanted us for, but she looks confused, telling us she didn't call. She said that she had been out with the dog for 15 minutes. To this day, Jack and I can't figure out who called us, or what I stubbed my toe on. I have a ton of other stories, but those are two of my tamer ones. If you ever want to hear something scarier, I definitely have a lot to share. It ran from CLJ HMN. My fiancé Andrew and I moved into the home I grew up in. The old home had been vacant for years. He enlisted his best friend John to stay with us while he helped do some minor repairs and cleaning. I was pregnant with our daughter at the time. Andrew and I slept in the master bedroom, and John took one of the guest rooms as his own while he stayed. I came home from work one day to find Andrew and John acting weird. They told me hours before I arrived they'd been working in the backyard. John looked up to see a pale woman with dark hair standing at the kitchen window, staring outside in his direction. He called out to Andrew, asking him if I was supposed to be home early. Andrew replied, shaking his head and answering no. By this time, John and Andrew were both looking at the female figure staring back at them. Finally, it backed away from the window and out of view. As they were telling me about this, I got serious goosebumps. However, we decided to ignore the ghostly woman and went about our day. A few days later, Andrew and John were outside working again when they saw the same woman walk down the hallway and past the back door window. Again, I came home to two grown men scared to be in the house without me there. As Andrew is six foot three and 280 pounds, and John himself is a kickboxer, it was a bizarre sight. I found their fear of a ghostly woman almost amusing. Until the night it happened. Fast forward two years and some minor scares later. Small things had happened like cabinet doors being opened when we know they were closed, lights being on when we know they'd all been off. Our daughter had been born in 2009. John had moved out for about a year, but the guest room he slept in was still furnished. 
Sometimes Andrew and I would sleep in that room, because we could watch a movie together and fall asleep there. The night this happened, Andrew and I had just finished a movie, and the baby had fallen asleep between us. I wanted to wait a couple more minutes before I moved her to her crib, so I just laid there, not moving and not sleeping. Andrew was on the outside of the bed, also being perfectly still and perhaps on the verge of sleep. We had no pets inside the house, nothing that could explain what happened next. The sound of heavy feet began taking fast steps in the living room, moving quicker and quicker with each step, until it was at a dead run down the hallway towards our room and the guest bathroom at the end of the hall. Hearing the first few heavy steps brought me straight up in the bed, and by the time the stomping running feet passed our bedroom door, I was stepping over Andrew's legs and onto the floor. It crashed into the bathroom door so hard, the springy doorstop on the bathroom wall was vibrating. Andrew was sitting up in bed, pale with fear, and asked what the heck that was. By this point, I have my hand on the bedroom doorknob. All I can say is, I don't know. Stay with the baby while I go look. I opened the bedroom door and saw the bathroom door still moving slowly back and forth. Scared to death that I might find this huge, heavy thing that had run down my hallway and crashed into the bathroom. Scared to see what uninvited guest was only yards from my tiny baby, I quickly and quietly covered the short distance from bedroom to bathroom. I stopped at the swinging door, and without going into the dark bathroom, I thrust my hand in the direction of the wall switch, flicking on the light. Nothing was there. I took a few more fast steps and yanked the shower curtain back so hard that it tore a few rings out, but there was nothing there. Glad to not have found a psychopath or something, I returned to the bedroom. Andrew was there holding our sleeping baby sitting up in bed. What was it? What did you see? He asked. Nothing, I replied. Nobody. Whatever crashed into the door is gone. But where did it go? There's no way for it to leave. The bathroom window is too small for anyone to shimmy through, he said. I shook my head. I don't know was the only answer I had. He stayed in the guest bedroom with our baby while I checked the rest of the house. It was empty, so I locked up. No surprise there. I always made sure the place was locked every night. We were so scared and shaken we decided to spend the rest of the night at his dad's house, 45 minutes away. We loaded up the baby and her things, and then we left. We didn't speak of what happened until the next day. With the light of the day, it didn't seem any less scary, but we were able to return home, but we never slept in that room again.